What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Book One, Chapter 31 of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One Poverty. Chapter 31 Spirit. Anybody may pass, any day, in the thronged thoroughfares of the metropolis, some meagre, wrinkled, yellow old man, who might be supposed to have dropped from the stars if there were any star in the heavens dull enough to be suspected of casting off so feeble a spark, creeping along with a scared air, as though bewildered and a little frightened by the noise and bustle. This old man is always a little old man. If he were ever a big old man, he was shrunk into a little old man. If he were always a little old man, he has dwindled into a less old man. His coat is a colour and cut that never was the mode anywhere, at any period. Clearly it was not made for him, or for any individual mortal. Some wholesale contractor measured fate for five thousand coats of such quality, and fate has lent this old coat to this old man, as one of a long unfinished line of many old men. It has always large dull metal buttons, similar to no other buttons. This old man wears a hat, a thumbed and napless, and yet an obdurate hat, which has never adapted itself to the shape of his poor head. His coarse shirt and his coarse neckcloth have no more individuality than his coat and hat. They have the same character of not being his, of not being anybody's. Yet this old man wears these clothes with a certain unaccustomed air of being dressed and elaborated for the public ways, as though he passed the greater part of his time in a nightcap and gown. And so, like the country mouse, in the second year of a famine, come to see the town mouse, and timidly threading his way to the town mouse's lodging through a city of cats, this old man passes in the streets. Sometimes, on holidays towards evening, he will be seen to walk with a slightly increased infirmity, and his old eyes will glimmer with a moist and marshy light. Then the little old man is drunk. A very small measure will overset him, he may be bowled off his unsteady legs with a half-pint pot. Some pitying acquaintance, chance acquaintance very often, has warmed up his weakness with a treat of beer, and the consequence will be the lapse of a longer time than usual before he shall pass again. For the little old man is going home to the workhouse, and on his good behaviour they do not let him out often, though methinks they might, considering the few years he has before him to go out in under the sun. 
and on his bad behaviour they shut him up closer than ever in a grove of two score and nineteen more old men, every one of whom smells of all the others. Mrs. Plornish's father, a poor little reedy, piping old gentleman, like a worn-out bird, who had been in what he called the music-binding business, and met with great misfortunes, and who had seldom been able to make his way, or to see it, or to pay it, or to do anything at all with it, but find it no thoroughfare, had retired of his own accord to the workhouse, which was appointed by law to be the good Samaritan of his district, without the tuppence, which was bad political economy, on the settlement of that execution which had carried Mr. Plornish to the Marshalsea College. Previous to his son-in-law's difficulties, coming to that head, old Nandy, he was always so called in his legal retreat, but he was old Mr. Nandy among the bleeding hearts, had sat in a corner of the Plornish fireside, and taken his bite and sup out of the Plornish cupboard. He still hoped to resume that domestic position when fortune should smile upon his son-in-law. In the meantime, while she preserved an immovable countenance, he was, and resolved to remain, one of these little old men, in a grove of little old men, with a community of flavour. But no poverty in him, and no coat on him that never was the mode, and no old man's ward for his dwelling-place could quench his daughter's admiration. Mrs. Plornish was as proud of her father's talents as she could possibly have been if they had made him Lord Chancellor. She had as firm a belief in the sweetness and propriety of his manners as she could possibly have had if he had been Lord Chamberlain. The poor little old man knew some pale and vapid little songs, long out of date, about Chloe, and Phyllis, and Strephon, being wounded by the son of Venus, and for Mrs. Plornish there was no such music at the opera as the small internal flutterings and chirpings wherein he would discharge himself of these ditties, like a weak, little, broken barrel organ ground by a baby. On his days out, those flecks of light in his flat vista of pollard old men, it was at once Mrs. Plornish's delight and sorrow, when he was strong with meat, and had taken his full ha'penneth of porter, to say, "'Sing us a song, father.' Then he would give them Chloe, and if he were in pretty good spirits, Phyllis also. Strephon he had hardly been up to since he went into retirement, and then would Mrs. Plornish declare she did believe there never was such a singer as father, and wipe her eyes. If he had come from court on these occasions, nay, if he had been the noble refrigerator come home triumphantly from a foreign court to be presented and promoted on his last tremendous failure, Mrs. Plornish could not have handed him with greater elevation about Bleeding Heart Yard. "'Here's father,' she would say, presenting him to a neighbour. "'Father will soon be home with us for good now. Ain't father looking well? Father's a sweeter singer than ever.' "'You'd never have forgotten it if you'd heard him just now.' As to Mr. Plornish, he had married these articles of belief in marrying Mr. Nandy's daughter, and only wondered how it was that so gifted an old gentleman had not made a fortune. This he attributed, after much reflection, to his musical genius not having been scientifically developed in his youth. "'For why?' argued Mr. Plornish. "'Why go a-binding music?' "'When you've got it in yourself. "'That's where it is, I consider.' "'Old Nandy had a patron, one patron, 
he had a patron who, in a certain sumptuous way, an apologetic way, as if he constantly took an admiring audience to witness that he really could not help being more free with this old fellow than he might have expected on account of his simplicity and poverty, was mightily good to him. Old Nandy had been several times to the Marshalsea College, communicating with his son-in-law during his short durance there, and had happily acquired to himself, and had by degrees, and in course of time, much improved, the patronage of the father of that national institution. Mr. Dorrit was in the habit of receiving this old man, as if the old man held of him in vassalage under some feudal tenure. He made little treats and teas for him, as if he came in with his homage from some outlying district where the tenantry were in a primitive state. It seemed as if there were moments when he could by no means have sworn but that the old man was an ancient retainer of his who had been meritoriously faithful. When he mentioned him, he spoke of him casually as his old pensioner. He had a wonderful satisfaction in seeing him, and in commenting on his decayed condition after he was gone. It appeared to him amazing that he could hold up his head at all, poor creature. "'In the workhouse, sir, the union. No privacy, no visitors, no station, no respect, no speciality. Most deplorable.' It was old Nandy's birthday, and they let him out. He said nothing about its being his birthday, or they might have kept him in, for such old men should not be born. He passed along the streets as usual to Bleeding Heart Yard, and had his dinner with his daughter and son-in-law, and gave them Phyllis. He had hardly concluded when Little Dorrit looked in to see how they all were. "'Miss Dorrit,' said Mrs. Plornish, "'here's father.' "'Ain't he looking nice? And such a voice he's in!' Little Dorrit gave him her hand, and smilingly said she had not seen him this long time. "'No, they're rather hard on poor father,' said Mrs. Plornish, with a lengthening face, "'and don't let him have half as much change and fresh air as would benefit him. But he'll soon be home for good now, won't you, father?' "'Yes, dear, I hope so.' "'In good time, please, God.' Here Mr. Plornish delivered himself of an oration which he invariably made, word for word the same, on all such opportunities. It was couched in the following terms. "'John Edward Nandy, sir, while there's out to whittles, or drink of any sort in this present roof, you're welcome to your share on it. While there's an handful of fire,' or a mouthful of bed in this present roof, you're fully welcome to your share on it. If so be as there should be nothing in this present roof, you should be as welcome to your share on it as if it was something, much or little. And this is what I mean, and so I don't deceive you, and consequently, which is to stand out, is to entreat of you, and therefore why not do it? To this lucid address, which Mr. Plornish always delivered, as if he had composed it, as no doubt he had, with enormous labour, Mrs. Plornish's father pipingly replied, "'I thank you kindly, Thomas, and I know your intentions well, which is the same I thank you kindly for, but no, Thomas, I'm Oh, such times as it's not to take it out 
of your children's mouths which take it is and call it by what name you will it do remain and equally deprive though may they come and too soon they cannot come no thomas no mrs plornish who had been turning her face a little away with the corner of her apron in her hand brought herself back to the conversation again by telling miss dorrit that father was going over the water to pay his respects unless she knew of any reason why it might not be agreeable her answer was i am going straight home and if you will come with me i should be so glad to take care of him so glad said little dorrit always thoughtful of the feelings of the weak of his company there father cried mrs plornish ain't you a gay young man to be going for a walk along with miss dorrit let me tie your neck handkerchief into a regular good bow for you're a regular bow yourself father if ever there was one with this filial joke his daughter smartened him up and gave him a loving hug and stood at the door with her weak child in her arms and her strong child tumbling down the steps looking after her little old father as he toddled away with his arm under little dorrit's they walked at a slow pace and little dorrit took him by the iron bridge and sat him down there for a rest and they looked over at the water and talked about the shipping and the old man mentioned what he would do if he had a ship full of gold coming home to him his plan was to take a noble lodging for the plornishes and himself at a tea-gardens and live there all the rest of their lives attended on by the waiter and it was a special birthday of the old man they were within five minutes of their destination when at the corner of her own street they came upon fanny in her new bonnet bound for the same port why good gracious me amy cried that young lady starting you never mean it mean what fanny dear well i could have believed a great deal of you returned the young lady with burning indignation but i don't think even i could have believed this even of you fanny cried little dorrit wounded and astonished oh don't fanny me you mean little thing don't the idea of coming along the open streets in the broad light of day with a pauper firing off the last word as if it were a ball from an air-gun oh fanny i tell you not to fanny me for i'll not submit to it i never knew such a thing the way in which you are resolved and determined to disgrace us on all occasions is really infamous you bad little thing does it disgrace anybody said little dorrit very gently to take care of this poor old man yes miss returned her sister and you ought to know it does and you do know it does and you do it because you know it does the principal pleasure of your life is to remind your family of their misfortunes and the next great pleasure of your existence is to keep low company but however if you have no sense of decency i have you'll please to allow me to go on the other side of the way unmolested with this she bounced across to the opposite pavement the old disgrace who had been deferentially bowing a pace or two off for little dorrit had let his arm go in her wonder when fanny began and who had been hustled and cursed by impatient passengers for stopping the way rejoined his companion rather giddy and said i hope nothing's 
wrong with your honoured father, miss. I hope there's nothing the matter in the honoured family. No, no, returned Little Dorrit. No, thank you. Give me your arm again, Mr. Nandy. We shall soon be there now. So she talked to him as she had talked before, and they came to the lodge, and found Mr. Chivery on the lock, and went in. Now it happened that the father of the Marshalsea was sauntering towards the lodge at that moment when they were coming out of it, entering the prison arm in arm. As the spectacle of their approach met his view, he displayed the utmost agitation and despondency of mind, and, altogether regardless of old Nandy, who, making his reverence, stood with his hat in his hand, as he always did in that gracious presence, turned about and hurried in at his own doorway and up the staircase. Leaving the old unfortunate, whom in an evil hour she had taken under her protection, with a hurried promise to return to him directly, little Dorrit hastened after her father, and on the staircase found Fanny following her, and flouncing up with offended dignity. The three came into the room almost together, and the father sat down in his chair, buried his face in his hands, and uttered a groan. "'Of course,' said Fanny, "'very proper. Poor afflicted pa. Now I hope you believe me, miss.' "'What is it, father?' cried Little Dorrit, bending over him. "'Have I made you unhappy, father? Not I, I hope. You hope, indeed, I dare say. Oh, you—' Fanny paused for a sufficiently strong expression. "'You common-minded little Amy, you complete prison-child!' He stopped these angry reproaches with a wave of his hand, and sobbed out, raising his face and shaking his melancholy head at his younger daughter. "'Amy, I know that you are innocent in intention, but you have cut me to the soul.' "'Innocent in intention?' the implacable Fanny struck in. "'Stuff in intention! Low in intention! Lowering of the family in intention!' "'Father!' cried Little Dorrit, pale and trembling. "'I'm very sorry. Pray forgive me. Tell me how it is that I may not do it again.' "'How it is, you prevaricating little piece of goods!' cried Fanny. "'You know how it is!' I have told you already, so don't fly in the face of Providence by attempting to deny it. Hush, Amy, said the father, passing his pocket-handkerchief several times across his face, and then grasping it convulsively in the hand that dropped across his knee. I have done what I could to keep you select here. I have done what I could to retain your position here. I may have succeeded, I may not. You may know it, you may not. I give no opinion. I have endured everything here but humiliation, that I have happily been spared, until this day." Here his convulsive grasp unclosed itself, and he put his pocket-handkerchief to his eyes again. Little Dorrit, on the ground beside him, with an imploring hand upon his arm, watched him remorsefully. Coming out of his fit of grief, he clenched his pocket-handkerchief once more. "'Humiliation! I have happily been spared until this day. Through all my troubles there has been that 
spirit in myself, and that uh, that submission to it, if I may use the term, and those about me which has spared me ah, humiliation. But this day, this minute, I have keenly felt it. Of course, how could it be otherwise? exclaimed the irrepressible Fanny, careering and prancing about with a pauper. Airgun again. "'But, dear father,' cried Little Dorrit, "'I don't justify myself for having wounded your dear heart. No, heaven knows I don't,' she clasped her hands in quite an agony of distress. "'I do nothing but beg and pray you to be comforted and overlook it. But if I had not known that you were kind to the old man yourself, and took much notice of him, and were always glad to see him, I would not have come here with him, father. I would not indeed. What I have been so unhappy as to do, I have done in mistake. I would not willfully bring a tear to your eyes, dear love," said Little Dorrit, her heart well-nigh broken, for anything the world could give me, or anything it could take away. Fanny, with a partly angry and partly repentant sob, began to cry herself and to say, as this young lady always said when she was half in passion and half out of it, half spiteful with herself and half spiteful with everybody else, that she wished she were dead. The father of the Marshalsea, in the meantime, took his younger daughter to his breast and patted her head. "'There, there, say no more, Amy, say no more, my child. I will forget it as soon as I can. I with hysterical cheerfulness, I shall soon be able to dismiss it. It is perfectly true, my dear, that I am always glad to see my old pensioner as such, as such, and, and that I do extend as much protection and kindness to the, um, the bruised reed, I trust I may so call him without impropriety, as in my circumstances I can. It is quite true that this is the case, my dear child. At the same time, I preserve in doing this, if I may, ha, if I may use the expression, spirit, becoming spirit. And there are some things which are, he stopped to sob, irreconcilable with that, and, 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 and wound that, wounded deeply. It is not that I have seen my good Amy attentive and uh, condescending to my old pensioner. It is not that that hurts me. It is, if I am to close the painful subject by being explicit, that I have seen my child, my own child, my own daughter, coming into this college, out of the public streets, smiling, smiling, arm in arm with, oh, my God, a livery. This reference to the coat of no cut and no time, the unfortunate gentleman gasped forth in a scarcely audible voice, and with his clenched pocket-handkerchief raised in the air. His excited feelings might have found some further painful utterance, but for a knock at the door, which had been already twice repeated, and to which Fanny, still wishing herself dead, 
and indeed now going so far as to add, buried, cried, "'Come in!' "'Ah, young John,' said father, in an altered and calm voice, "'what is it, young John?' "'A letter for you, sir, being left in the lodge just this minute, and a message with it. I thought, happening to be there myself, sir, I would bring it to your room.' The speaker's attention was much distracted by the piteous spectacle of little Dorrit at her father's feet, with her head turned away. "'Indeed, John, thank you. The letter is from Mr. Clennam, sir. It's the answer, and the message was, sir, that Mr. Clennam also sent his compliments, and word that he would do himself the pleasure of calling this afternoon, hoping to see you, and likewise. Attention more distracted than before. Miss Amy?' "'Oh!' As the father glanced into the letter, there was a bank-note in it. He reddened a little and patted Amy on the head afresh. "'Thank you, young John. Quite right. Much obliged to you for your attention. No one waiting?' "'No, sir. No one waiting.' "'Thank you, John. How is your mother, young John?' Uh, "'Thank you, sir. She's not quite as well as we could wish. In fact, we none of us are, except father. But she's pretty well, sir.' "'Say we send our remembrances, will you?' "'Say kind remembrances, if you please, young John.' Oh, "'Thank you, sir. I will.' And Mr. Chivery, Jr., went his way, having spontaneously composed on the spot an entirely new epitaph for himself, to the effect that here lay the body of John Chivery, who, having at such a date beheld the idol of his life in grief and tears, and feeling unable to bear the harrowing spectacle, immediately repaired to the abode of his inconsolable parents, and terminated his existence by his own rash act. "'There, there, Amy,' said the father, when young John had closed the door, "'let us say no more about it.' The last few minutes had improved his spirits remarkably, and he was quite lightsome. "'Where is my old pensioner all this while? We must not leave him by himself any longer, or he will begin to suppose he is not welcome, and that would pain me. Will you fetch him, my child, or shall I?' "'You don't mind, father,' said Little Dorrit, trying to bring her sobbing to a close. "'Certainly I will go, my dear. I forgot your eyes are rather red. There, there, cheer up. Amy, don't be uneasy about me. I am quite myself again, my love, quite myself. Go to your room, Amy, and make yourself look comfortable and pleasant to receive Mr. Clennam.' "'I would rather stay in my own room, father,' returned Little Dorrit finding it more difficult than before to regain her composure. "'I would far rather not see Mr. Clennam.' "'No. Fie, fie, my dear, that's folly. Mr. Clennam is a very gentlemanly man, very gentlemanly, a little reserved at times, but I will say extremely gentlemanly. I couldn't think of you not being here to receive Mr. Clennam, my dear, especially this afternoon. So go and freshen yourself up, Amy. Go and freshen yourself up like a good girl.' Thus directed, little Dorrit dutifully rose and obeyed, only pausing for a moment as she went out of the room to give her sister a kiss of reconciliation. Upon which, that young lady, feeling much harassed in her mind, and having for the time worn out the wish with which she generally relieved it, conceived and executed the brilliant idea of wishing old Nandy dead, rather than that he should come bothering there like a disgusting, tiresome, wicked wretch and making mischief between two sisters. 
The father of the Marshalsea, even humming a tune, and wearing his black velvet cap a little on one side, so much improved were his spirits, went down into the yard, and found his old pensioner standing there, hat in hand, just within the gate, as he had stood all this time. "'Come, Nandy,' said he, with great suavity, "'come upstairs, Nandy. You know the way. Why don't you come upstairs?' He went the length, on this occasion, of giving him his hand, and saying, "'How are you, Nandy? Are you pretty well?' To which that vocalist returned, "'I thank you. Honoured, sir, I am all the better for seeing your honour." As they went along the yard, the father of the Marshalsea presented him to a collegian of recent date. "'An old acquaintance of mine, sir, an old pensioner.' and then said, "'Be covered, my good Nandy, put your hat on,' with great consideration. His patronage did not stop here, for he charged Maggie to get the tea ready, and instructed her to buy certain tea-cakes, fresh butter, eggs, cold ham, and shrimps, to purchase which collation he gave her a bank-note for ten pounds, laying strict injunctions on her to be careful of the change. These preparations were in an advanced stage of progress, and his daughter Amy had come back with her work, when Clennam presented himself, whom he most graciously received, and besought to join their meal. "'Amy, my love, you know Mr. Clennam even better than I have the happiness of doing. Fanny, my dear, you are acquainted with Mr. Clennam?' Fanny acknowledged him haughtily the position she tacitly took up in all such cases, being that there was a vast conspiracy to insult the family by not understanding it, or sufficiently deferring to it, and here was one of the conspirators. "'This, Mr. Clennam, you must know, is an old pensioner of mine, old Nandy, a very faithful old man.' He always spoke of him as an object of great antiquity, but he was two or three years younger than himself. "'Let me see, uh, you know, Plornish, I think. I think my daughter Amy has mentioned to me that you know poor Plornish.' "'Oh, yes,' said Arthur Clennam. "'Well, sir, this is Mrs. Plornish's father.' "'Indeed. I am glad to see him.' "'You would be more glad if you knew his many good qualities, Mr. Clennam.' "'I hope I shall come to know them through knowing him,' said Arthur, secretly pitying the bowed and submissive figure. "'It is a holiday with him, and he comes to see his old friends, who are always glad to see him,' observed the father of the Marshalsea. Then he added behind his hand, "'Union, poor old fellow, out for the day.' By this time Maggie, quietly assisted by her little mother, had spread the board, and the repast was ready. It being hot weather, and the prison very close, the window was as wide open as it could be pushed. "'If Maggie will spread that newspaper on the window-sill, my dear,' remarked the father complacently, and in a half-whisper to little Dorrit, "'my old pensioner can have his tea there, while we are having ours.' So, with the gulf between him and the good company of about a foot in width, standard measure, Mrs. Plornish's father was handsomely regaled. Clennam had never seen anything like his magnanimous protection by that other father, he of the Marshalsea, and was lost in the contemplation of its many wonders. 
The most striking of these was perhaps the relishing manner in which he remarked on the pensioner's infirmities and failings, as if he were a gracious keeper making a running commentary on the decline of the harmless animal he exhibited. "'Not ready for more ham yet, Nandy? Why, how slow you are! His last teeth!' he explained to the company, are going, poor old boy. At another time he said, "'No shrimps, Nandy!' and on his not instantly replying observed, "'His hearing is becoming very defective. He'll be deaf directly.' At another time he asked him, "'Do you walk much, Nandy, about the yard within the walls of that place of yours?' "'No, sir, no, I haven't any great liking for that.' "'No, to be sure,' he assented. "'Very natural.' Then he privately informed the circle, "'Legs going.' Once he asked the pensioner, in that general clemency which asked him anything to keep him afloat, how old his younger grandchild was. "'John Edward,' said the pensioner, slowly laying down his knife and fork to consider. "'How old, sir?' Ah, let me think now. The father of the Marshalsea tapped his forehead. Memory weak. John Edward, sir. Oh, well, I really forget. I couldn't say at this minute, sir, whether it's two and two months, or whether it's two and five months. It's one or the other. "'Don't distress yourself by worrying your mind about it,' he returned with infinite forbearance. "'Faculties evidently decaying. Old man rusts in the life he leads.' The more of these discoveries that he persuaded himself he made in the pensioner, the better he appeared to like him. And when he got out of his chair, after tea, to bid the pensioner good-bye, on his intimating that he feared, honoured sir, his time was running out, he made himself look as erect and strong as possible. "'We don't call this a shilling, Nandy, you know,' he said, putting one in his hand. "'We call it tobacco.' "'Honoured, sir, I thank you. It shall buy tobacco. My thanks and duty to Miss Amy and Miss Fanny. I wish you good-night, Mr. Clennam.' "'And mind you don't forget us, you know, Nandy,' said the father. "'You must come again, mind, whenever you have an afternoon. "'You must not come out without seeing us, or we shall be jealous. <laughs> "'Good night, Nandy. Be very careful how you descend the stairs, Nandy. "'They're rather uneven and worn.' With that he stood on the landing, watching the old man down. And when he came into the room again, said with a solemn satisfaction on him, a melancholy sight, that, Mr. Clennam, though one has the consolation of knowing that he doesn't feel it himself. The poor old fellow is a dismal wreck, spirit broken and gone, pulverised, crushed out of him, sir, completely. As Clennam had a purpose in remaining, he said what he could, responsive to these sentiments, and stood at the window with their enunciator, while Maggie and her little mother washed the tea-service and cleared it away. He noticed that his companion stood at the window with the air of an affable and accessible sovereign, 
and that, when any of his people in the yard below looked up, his recognition of their salutes just stopped short of a blessing. When Little Dorrit had her work on the table, and Maggie hers on the bedstead, Fanny fell to tying her bonnet as a preliminary to her departure. Arthur, still having his purpose, still remained. At this time the door opened without any notice, and Mr. Tip came in. He kissed Amy as she started up to meet him, nodded to Fanny, nodded to his father, gloomed on the visitor without further recognition, and sat down. A "'Tip, dear,' said Little Dorrit mildly, shocked by this, "'don't you see?' "'Yes, I see, Amy. If you refer to the presence of any visitor you have here, I say, if you refer to that,' answered Tip, jerking his head with emphasis towards his shoulder nearest Clennam, "'I see.' "'Is that all you say?' "'That's all I say. And I suppose,' added the lofty young man, after a moment's pause, "'that visitor will understand me, when I say that's all I say. In short, I suppose the visitor will understand that he hasn't used me like a gentleman.' "'I do not understand that,' observed the obnoxious personage referred to with tranquillity. "'No. <laughs> Why, then, to make it clearer to you, sir—' I beg to let you know that when I address what I call a properly worded appeal, and an urgent appeal, and a delicate appeal, to an individual for a small temporary accommodation, easily within his power, easily within his power, mind, and when that individual writes back word to me that he begs to be excused, I consider that he doesn't treat me like a gentleman." The father of the Marshalsea, who had surveyed his son in silence, no sooner heard this sentiment and he began, in angry voice, "'How dare you!' But his son stopped him. "'Now, don't ask me how I dare, father, because that's bosh. As to the fact of the line of conduct I choose to adopt towards the individual present, you ought to be proud of my showing a proper spirit.' "'I should think so,' cried Fanny. "'A proper spirit?' said the father. "'Yes, a proper spirit, a becoming spirit.' Is it come to this that my son teaches me, me, spirit? Now don't let us bother about it, father, or have any row on the subject. I've fully made up my mind that the individual present has not treated me like a gentleman, and there's an end of it." "'But there is not an end of it, sir,' returned the father. "'But there shall not be an end of it. You have made up your mind. You have made up your mind. Yes, I have. What's the good of keeping on like that? Because, returned the father in a great heat, you have no right to make up your mind to what is monstrous, to what is ah, immoral, to what is mm, parricidal. No, Mr. Clennam, I beg, sir, don't ask me to desist. There is a, mm, a general principle involved here, which rises even above considerations of uh, hospitality. I object to the assertion made by my son. I, uh, I personally repel it. Why, what is it to you, father? returned the son over his shoulder. "'What is it to me, sir? I have a, um, a spirit, sir, that will not endure it. I—' He took out his pocket-handkerchief again, and dabbed his face. "'I am outraged and insulted by it. 
let me suppose the case that i myself may at a certain time huh, or times have made a hmm, an appeal and a properly worded appeal and a delicate appeal and an urgent appeal to some individual for a small temporary accommodation let me suppose that that accommodation could have been easily extended and was not extended and that that individual informed me that he begged to be excused am i to be told by my own son that i therefore received treatment not due to a gentleman and that i huh, i submitted to it his daughter amy gently tried to calm him but he would not on any account be calmed he said his spirit was up and he wouldn't endure this was he to be told that he wished to know again by his own son on his own hearth to his own face was that humiliation to be put upon him by his own blood you're putting it on yourself father and getting into all this injury of your own accord said the young gentleman morosely what i have made up my mind about has nothing to do with you what i said had nothing to do with you why need you go trying on other people's hats i reply it has everything to do with me returned the father i point out to you sir with indignation that the uh, delicacy and peculiarity of your father's position should strike you dumb sir if nothing else should in laying down such uh, such unnatural principles besides if you are not filial sir if you discard that duty you are at least um, not a christian are you uh, an atheist and is it christian let me ask you to stigmatize and denounce an individual for begging to be excused this time when the same individual may ha uh, respond with the required accommodation next time is it the part of a christian not to hum not to try him again he had worked himself into quite a religious glow and fervour i see precious well said mr tip rising that i shall get no sensible or fair argument here to-night and so the best thing i can do is to cut good-night amy don't be vexed i'm very sorry it happens here and you are here upon my soul i am but i can't altogether part with my spirit even for your sake old girl with those words he put on his hat and went out accompanied by miss fanny who did not consider it spirited on her part to take leave of clennam with any less opposing demonstration than a stare importing that she had always known him for one of the large body of conspirators when they were gone the father of the marshalsea was at first inclined to sink into despondency again and would have done so but that a gentleman opportunely came up within a minute or two to attend him to the snuggery it was the gentleman clennam had seen on the night of his own accidental detention there who had that impalpable grievance about the misappropriated fund on which the marshal was supposed to batten he presented himself as deputation to escort the father to the chair it being an occasion on which he had promised to preside over the assembled collegians in the enjoyment of a little harmony such you see mr clennam said the father are the incongruities of my position here but a public duty no man i am sure would more readily recognize a public duty than yourself 
Clennam besought him not to delay a moment. "'Amy, my dear, if you can persuade Mr. Clennam to stay longer, I can leave the honours of our poor apology for an establishment with confidence in your hands, and perhaps you may do something towards erasing from Mr. Clennam's mind the ah, untoward and unpleasant circumstance which has occurred since tea-time.' Clennam assured him that it had made no impression on his mind, and therefore required no erasure. "'My dear sir,' said the father, with a removal of his black cap, and a grasp of Clennam's hand, combining to express the safe receipt of his note and enclosure that afternoon, "'Heaven ever bless you!' So, at last, Clennam's purpose in remaining was attained, and he could speak to Little Dorrit with nobody by. Maggie counted as nobody, and she was by. End of Book One Chapter 31book 1 chapter 32 of little dorrit this librivox recording is in the public domain recorded by mill nicholson little dorrit by charles dickens book 1 poverty chapter 32 more fortune-telling maggie sat at her work in her great white cap with its quantity of opaque frilling hiding what profile she had as she had none to spare and her serviceable eye brought to bear upon her occupation on the window-side of the room what with her flapping cap and what with her unserviceable eye she was quite partitioned off from her little mother whose seat was opposite the window the tread and shuffle of feet on the pavement of the yard had much diminished since the taking of the chair the tide of collegians having set strongly in the direction of harmony some few who had no music in their souls or no money in their pockets dawdled about, and the old spectacle of the visitor-wife and the depressed, unseasoned prisoner still lingered in corners, as broken cobwebs and such unsightly discomforts draggle in corners of other places. It was the quietest time the college knew, saving the night-hours, when the collegians took the benefit of the act of sleep. The occasional rattle of applause upon the tables of the snuggery denoted the successful termination of a morsel of harmony or the responsive acceptance by the united children of some toast or sentiment offered to them by their father occasionally a vocal strain more sonorous than the generality informed the listener that some boastful bass was in blue water or in the hunting-field or with the reindeer or on the mountain or among the heather but the marshal of the marshalsea knew better and had got him hard and fast as arthur clennam moved to sit down by the side of little dorrit she trembled so that she had much ado to hold her needle. Clennam gently put his hand upon her work, and said, "'Dear little Dorrit, let me lay it down.' She yielded it to him, and he put it aside. Her hands were then nervously clasping together, but he took one of them. "'How seldom I have seen you lately, little Dorrit.' "'I have been busy, sir.' "'But I heard only to-day,' said Clennam by mere accident of your having been with those good people close by me why not come to me then i-i don't know or rather i thought you might be busy too you generally are now are you not he saw her trembling little form and her downcast face 
and the eyes that drooped the moment they were raised to his. He saw them almost with as much concern as tenderness. "'My child, your manner is so changed.' The trembling was now quite beyond her control. Softly withdrawing her hand, and laying it in her other hand, she sat before him with her head bent, and her whole form trembling. "'My own little Dorrit,' said Clennam compassionately. She burst into tears. Maggie looked round of a sudden, and stared for at least a minute, but did not interpose. Clennam waited some little while before he spoke again. "'I cannot bear,' he said then, "'to see you weep. But I hope this is a relief to an overcharged heart.' "'Yes, it is, sir. Nothing but that.' "'Well, well, I feared you would think too much of what passed here just now. It is of no moment, not the least. I am only unfortunate to have come in the way. Let it go by with these tears. It is not worth one of them. One of them. Such an idle thing should be repeated, with my glad consent, fifty times a day, to save you a moment's heartache, little Dorrit.' She had taken courage now and answered far more in her usual manner. "'You are so good. But even if there was nothing else in it to be sorry for and ashamed of, it is such a bad return for you.' "'Hush!' said Clennam, smiling and touching her lips with his hand. "'Forgetfulness in you, who remember so many and so much, would be new indeed. Shall I remind you that I am not, and that I never was?' anything but the friend whom you agreed to trust? No, you remember it, don't you?" I tried to do so, or I should have broken the promise just now, when my mistaken brother was here. You will consider his bringing up in this place, and will not judge him hardly, poor fellow, I know." In raising her eyes with these words, she observed his face more nearly than she had done yet and said, with a quick change of tone, "'You have not been ill, Mr. Clennam?' "'No.' "'Nor tried, nor hurt?' she asked him anxiously. It fell to Clennam now, to be not quite certain how to answer. He said in reply, "'To speak the truth, I have been a little troubled. But it is over. Do I show it so plainly?' I ought to have more fortitude and self-command than that. I thought I had. I must learn them of you. Who could teach me better?" He never thought that she saw in him what no one else could see. He never thought that in the whole world there were no other eyes that looked upon him with the same light and strength as hers. "'But it brings me to something that I wish to say,' he continued, and therefore I will not quarrel, even with my own face, for telling tales and being unfaithful to me. Besides, it is a privilege and pleasure to confide in my little Dorrit. Let me confess, then, that, forgetting how grave I was, and how old I was, and how the time for such things had gone by me with the many years of sameness and little happiness that made up my long life far away, without marking it, that, forgetting all this, I fancied I loved someone." "'Do I know her, sir?' asked Little Dorrit. "'No, my child.' "'Not the lady who has been kind to me for your sake?' 
Flora, no, no. Uh, do you think—' "'I never quite thought so,' said Little Dorrit, more to herself than him. "'I did wonder at it a little.' "'Well,' said Clennam, abiding by the feeling that had fallen on him in the avenue on the night of the roses, the feeling that he was an older man who had done with that tender part of life. "'I found out my mistake, and I thought about it a little.' in short, a good deal, and got wiser. Being wiser, I counted up my years, and considered what I am, and looked back, and looked forward, and found that I should soon be grey. I found that I had climbed the hill, and passed the level ground upon the top, and was descending quickly. If he had known the sharpness of the pain he caused the patient heart in speaking thus, while doing it, too, with the purpose of easing and serving her. I found that the day when any such thing would have been graceful in me, or good in me, or hopeful or happy for me, or any one in connection with me, was gone, and would never shine again. Oh, if he had known, if he had known, if he could have seen the dagger in his hand, and the cruel wounds it struck in the faithful bleeding breast, of his little Dorrit. All that is over, and I have turned my face from it. Why do I speak of this to little Dorrit? Why do I show you, my child, the space of years that there is between us, and recall to you that I have passed, by the amount of your whole life, the time that is present to you? Because you trust me, I hope. Because you know that nothing can touch you without touching me that nothing can make you happy or unhappy, but it must make me, who am so grateful to you, the same." He heard the thrill in her voice, he saw her earnest face, he saw her clear true eyes, he saw the quickened bosom that would have joyfully thrown itself before him to receive a mortal wound directed at his breast, with the dying cry, "'I love him,' and the remotest suspicion of the truth never dawned upon his mind. No. He saw the devoted little creature, with her worn shoes, in her common dress, in her jail home, a slender child in body, a strong heroine in soul, and the light of her domestic story made all else dark to him. For those reasons, assuredly, little Dorrit, but for another, too, so far removed, so different, and so much older, I am the better fitted for your friend and adviser. I mean, I am the more easily to be trusted, and any little constraint that you might feel with another may vanish before me. Why have you kept so retired from me? Tell me." "'I am better here. My place and use are here. I am much better here.' said Little Dorrit faintly. "'So you said that day upon the bridge. I thought of it much afterwards. Have you no secret you could entrust to me, with hope and comfort, if you would?' "'Secret? No, I have no secret,' said Little Dorrit, in some trouble. They had been speaking in low voices, more because it was natural to what they said to adopt that tone than with any care to reserve it from Maggie at her work. All of a sudden Maggie stared again, and this time spoke. "'I say, little mother—' "'Yes, Maggie?' 
if you ain't got no secret of your own to tell him tell him that about the princess she had a secret you know the princess had a secret said clennam in some surprise what princess was that maggie Lor, how you do go and bother a gal o ten said maggie catching the poor thing up in that way whoever said the princess had a secret i never said so i beg your pardon i thought you did no i didn't how could i when it was her as wanted to find it out it was a little woman as had the secret she was always a spinning at her wheel and so she says to her why do you keep it there and so the t'other one says to her no i don't and so the t'other one says to her yes you do and then they both goes to the cupboard and there it is and she wouldn't go in the hospital and so she died you know little mother tell him that for it was a regular good secret that was cried maggie hugging herself arthur looked at little dorrit for help to comprehend this and was struck by seeing her so timid and red but when she told him that it was only a fairy tale she had one day made up for maggie and that there was nothing in it which she wouldn't be ashamed to tell again to anybody else even if she could remember it he left the subject where it was however he returned to his own subject by first entreating her to see him oftener and to remember that it was impossible to have a stronger interest in her welfare than he had or to be more set upon promoting it than he was when she answered fervently she well knew that she never forgot it he touched upon his second and more delicate point the suspicion he had formed little dorrit he said taking her hand again and speaking lower than he had spoken yet so that even maggie in the small room could not hear him another word i have wanted very much to say this to you i have tried for opportunities don't mind me who for the matter of years might be your father or your uncle always think of me as quite an old man i know that all your devotion centres in this room and that nothing to the last will ever tempt you away from the duties you discharge here if i were not sure of it i should before now have implored you and implored your father to let me make some provision for you in a more suitable place but you may have an interest i will not say now though even that might be may have at another time an interest in some one else an interest not incompatible with your affection here she was very very pale and silently shook her head it may be dear little dorrit no 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 she shook her head after each slow repetition of the word with an air of quiet desolation that he remembered long afterwards the time came when he remembered it well long afterwards within those prison walls within that very room but if it ever should be tell me so my dear child entrust the truth to me point out the object of such an interest to me and i will try with all the zeal and honour and friendship and respect that i feel for you good little dorrit of my heart to do you a lasting service oh thank you thank you 
but oh no oh no oh no she said this looking at him with her work-worn hands folded together and in the same resigned accents as before i press for no confidence now i only ask you to repose unhesitating trust in me can i do less than that when you are so good then you will trust me fully will have no secret unhappiness or anxiety concealed from me almost none and you have none now she shook her head but she was very pale when i lie down to-night and my thoughts come back as they will for they do every night even when i have not seen you to this sad place i may believe that there is no grief beyond this room now and its usual occupants which preys on little dorrit's mind she seemed to catch at these words that he remembered too long afterwards and said more brightly yes mr clennam yes you may the crazy staircase usually not slow to give notice when any one was coming up or down here creaked under a quick tread and a further sound was heard upon it as if a little steam-engine with more steam than it knew what to do with were working towards the room as it approached which it did very rapidly it laboured with increased energy and after knocking at the door it sounded as if it were stooping down and snorting in at the keyhole before maggie could open the door mr pancks opening it from without stood without a hat and with his bare head in the wildest condition looking at clennam and little dorrit over her shoulder he had a lighted cigar in his hand and brought with him airs of ale and tobacco smoke <sighs> oh pancks the gypsy he observed out of breath fortune telling he stood dingily smiling and breathing hard at them with a most curious air as if instead of being his proprietor's grubber he were the triumphant proprietor of the marshalsea the marshal all the turnkeys and all the collegians in his great self-satisfaction he put his cigar to his lips being evidently no smoker and took such a pull at it with his right eye shut up tight for the purpose that he underwent a convulsion of shuddering and choking but even in the midst of that paroxysm he still essayed to repeat his favourite introduction of himself hanks thergip see fortune telling i'm spending the evening with the rest of em said pancks i've been singing i've been taking a part in white sand and grey sand i don't know anything about it never mind i'll take any part in anything it's all the same if you're loud enough at first clennam supposed him to be intoxicated but he soon perceived that though he might be a little the worse or better for ale the staple of his excitement was not brewed from malt or distilled from any grain or berry how do you do miss dorrit said pancks i thought you wouldn't mind my running round and looking in for a moment mr clennam i heard was here from mr dorrit how are you sir clennam thanked him and said he was glad to see him so gay gay said pancks i'm in wonderful feather sir i can't stop a minute or i shall be missed i don't want him to miss me eh hey, miss dorrit he seemed to have an insatiate delight in appealing to her and looking at her excitedly sticking his hair up at the same moment like a dark species of cockatoo i haven't been here half an hour i knew mr dorrit was in the chair and i said i'll go and support him 
I ought to be down in bleeding Art Yard by rights, but I can worry them to-morrow. Eh, Miss Dorrit?' His little black eyes sparkled electrically. His very hair seemed to sparkle as he roughened it. He was in that highly charged state that one might have expected to draw sparks and snaps from him by presenting a knuckle to any part of his figure. "'Capital company here,' said Pancks. "'Eh, Miss Dorrit?' She was half afraid of him, and irresolute what to say. He laughed with a nod towards Clennam. "'Don't mind him, Miss Dorrit. He's one of us. We agreed that you shouldn't take on to mind me before people, but we didn't mean Mr. Clennam. He's one of us. He's in it. Ain't you, Mr. Clennam? Eh, Miss Dorrit?' The excitement of this strange creature was fast communicating itself to Clennam. Little Dorrit with amazement saw this, and observed that they exchanged quick looks. "'I was making a remark,' said Pancks, "'but I declare I forget what it was. Oh, I know. Capital company here. I've been treating him all round. Eh, Miss Dorrit?' "'Very generous of you,' she returned, noticing another of the quick looks between the two. "'Not at all,' said Pancks. "'Don't mention it. I'm coming into my property. That's a fact. I can afford to be liberal. I think I'll give him a treat here. Tables laid in the yard. Bread in stacks, pipes in faggots, tobacco in hayloads, roast beef and plum pudding for every one, quart of double stout ahead, pint of wine too if they like it, and the authorities give permission. Hey, Miss Dorrit? She was thrown into such a confusion by his manner, or rather by Clennam's growing understanding of his manner, for she looked to him, after every fresh appeal and cockatoo demonstration on the part of Mr. Pancks, that she only moved her lips in answer without forming any word. "'And, oh, by the by,' said Pancks, "'you are to live to know what was behind us on that little land of yours. "'And so you shall, you shall, my darling, eh, Miss Dorrit?' He had suddenly checked himself, where he got all the additional black prongs from, that now flew up all over his head like the myriads of points that break out on the large change of a great firework, was a wonderful mystery. "'But I shall be missed,' he came back to that, "'and I don't want him to miss me.' "'Mr. Clennam, you and I made a bargain. I said you should find me stick to it. You shall find me stick to it now, sir, if you'll step out of the room a moment. Miss Dorrit, I wish you good night. Miss Dorrit, I wish you good fortune.' He rapidly shook her by both hands, and puffed downstairs. Arthur followed him with such a hurried step, that he had very nearly tumbled over him on the last landing, and rolled him down into the yard. "'What is it, for heaven's sake?' Arthur demanded when they burst out there both together. "'Stop a moment, sir. Mr. Rugg, let me introduce him.' With those words he presented another man without a hat, and also with a cigar, and also surrounded with a halo of ale and tobacco smoke, which man, though not so excited as himself, was in a state which would have been akin to lunacy, but for its fading into sober method when compared with the rampancy of Mr. Pancks. "'Mr. Clennam, Mr. Rugg,' said Pancks, "'Stop a moment. Come to the pump.' They adjourned to the pump. Mr. Pancks, instantly putting his head under the spout, requested Mr. Rugg to take a good strong turn at the handle. Mr. Rugg complying to the letter, Mr. Pancks came forth snorting and blowing to some purpose, and dried himself on his handkerchief. "'Ah, oh, I'm the clearer for that,' he gasped to Clennam, standing astonished. "'But upon my soul, to hear her father making speeches in that chair—' "'Knowing what we know, and to see her up in that room in that dress, knowing what we know, is enough to—' 
"'Give me a back, Mr. Rugg, a little higher, sir. Ooh, that'll do.' Then and there, on that Marshalsea pavement, in the shades of evening, did Mr. Panks, of all mankind, fly over the head and shoulders of Mr. Rugg of Pentonville, general agent, accountant, and recoverer of debts. Alighting on his feet, he took Clennam by the buttonhole, led him behind the pump, and pantingly produced from his pocket a bundle of papers. Mr. Rugg also pantingly produced from his pocket a bundle of papers. "'Stay,' said Clennam in a whisper. "'You have made a discovery.' Mr. Panks answered with an unction which there is no language to convey. "'We rather think so.' "'Does it implicate anyone?' "'How implicate, sir?' "'In any suppression or wrong-dealing of any kind. Not a bit of it.' "'Oh, thank God,' said Clennam to himself. "'Now, show me.' "'You ought to understand.' snorted Panks, feverishly unfolding papers, and speaking in short, high-pressure blasts of sentences. "'Where's the pedigree? Where's the schedule number four, Mr. Rugg? Oh, all right. Here we are. You ought to understand that we are this very day virtually complete. We shan't be legal for a day or two. Call it, at the outside, a week. We've been at it, night and day, for I don't know how long. Mr. Rugg, you know how long. Never mind.' "'Don't say. It'll only confuse me. You shall tell her, Mr. Clennam. Not till we give you leave. Where's that rough total, Mr. Rugg? Oh, here we are. There, sir. That's what you'll have to break to her. That man's your father of the Marshalsea.'" End of Book One, Chapter Thirty-Two Book One, Chapter Thirty Three of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Thirty Three, Mrs. Merdle's Complaint. Resigning herself to inevitable fate by making the best of those people, the Miggleses, and submitting her philosophy to the draught upon it, of which she had foreseen the likelihood in her interview with Arthur, Mrs. Gowan handsomely resolved not to oppose her son's marriage. In her progress to, and happy arrival at, this resolution, she was possibly influenced not only by her maternal affections, but by three politic considerations. Of these, the first may have been that her son had never signified the smallest intention to ask her consent, or any mistrust of his ability to dispense with it. The second, that the pension bestowed upon her by a grateful country, and a barnacle, would be freed from any little filial inroads, when her Henry should be married to the darling only child of a man in very easy circumstances. The third, that Henry's debts must clearly be paid down upon the altar-railing by his father-in-law. When, to these three-fold points of prudence, there is added the fact that Mrs. Gowan yielded her consent the moment she knew of Mr. Meagles having yielded his, and that Mr. Meagles' objection to the marriage had been the sole obstacle in its way all along, it becomes the height of probability that the relict of the deceased commissioner of nothing particular turned these ideas in her sagacious mind. Among her connections and acquaintances, however, she maintained her individual dignity, and the dignity of the blood of the barnacles, by diligently nursing the pretence that it was a most unfortunate business, 
and she was sadly cut up by it, that this was a perfect fascination under which Henry laboured, that she had opposed it for a long time, but what could a mother do, and the like. She had already called Arthur Clennam to bear witness to this fable, as a friend of the Meagles family, and she followed up the move by now impounding the family itself for the same purpose. In the first interview, she accorded to Mr. Meagles, she slided herself to the position of disconsolately but gracefully yielding to irresistible pressure. With the utmost politeness and good breeding, she feigned that it was she, not he, who had made the difficulty, and who at length gave way, and that the sacrifice was hers, not his. The same feint, with the same polite dexterity, she foisted on Mrs. Meagles, as a conjurer might have forced a card on that innocent lady and when her future daughter-in-law was presented to her by her son she said on embracing her my dear what have you done to henry that has bewitched him so at the same time allowing a few tears to carry before them in little pills the cosmetic powder on her nose as a delicate but touching signal that she suffered much inwardly for the show of composure with which she bore her misfortune among the friends of mrs gowan who piqued herself at once on being society, and on maintaining intimate and easy relations with that power, Mrs. Myrtle occupied a front row. True, the Hampton Court Bohemians, without exception, turned up their noses at Myrtle as an upstart, but they turned them down again, by falling flat on their faces to worship his wealth. In which compensating adjustment of their noses, they were pretty much like Treasury, Bar, and Bishop, and all the rest of them. To Mrs. Myrtle, Mrs. Gowan repaired on a visit of self-condolence, after having given the gracious consent aforesaid. She drove into town for the purpose in a one-horse carriage, irreverently called, at that period of English history, a pill-box. It belonged to a job-master, in a small way, who drove it himself, and who jobbed it by the day, or hour, to most of the old ladies in Hampton Court Palace. But it was a point of ceremony, in that encampment, that the whole equipage should be tacitly regarded as the private property of the jobber for the time being, and that the job-master should betray personal knowledge of nobody but the jobber in possession. So the circumlocution barnacles, who were the largest job-masters in the universe, always pretended to know of no other job but the job immediately in hand. Mrs. Myrtle was at home, and was in her nest of crimson and gold, with the parrot on a neighbouring stem, watching her with his head on one side, as if he took her for another splendid parrot of a larger species. To whom entered Mrs. Gowan, with her favourite green fan, which softened the light on the spots of bloom. "'My dear soul,' said Mrs. Gowan, tapping the back of her friend's hand with this fan, after a little indifferent conversation, "'you are my only comfort.' that affair of henry's that i told you of is to take place now how does it strike you i am dying to know because you represent and express society so well mrs myrtle reviewed the bosom which society was accustomed to review and having ascertained that show-window of mr myrtle's and the london jewellers to be in good order replied as to marriage on the part of a man my dear society requires that he should retrieve his fortunes by marriage society requires that he should gain by marriage society requires that he should found a handsome establishment by marriage 
society does not see otherwise what he has to do with marriage bird be quiet for the parrot on his cage above them presiding over the conference as if he were a judge and indeed he looked rather like one had wound up the exposition with a shriek cases there are said mrs merdle delicately crooking the little finger of her favourite hand and making her remarks neater by that neat action cases there are where a man is not young or elegant and is rich and has a handsome establishment already those are of a different kind in such cases mrs merdle shrugged her snowy shoulders and put her hand upon the jewel-stand checking a little cough as though to add why a man looks out for this sort of thing my dear then the parrot shrieked again and she put up her glass to look at him and said bird do be quiet but young men resumed mrs merdle and by young men you know what i mean my love i mean people's sons who have the world before them they must place themselves in a better position towards society by marriage or society really will not have any patience with their making fools of themselves dreadfully worldly all this sounds said mrs merdle leaning back in her nest and putting up her glass again does it not but it is true said mrs gowan with a highly moral air my dear it is not to be disputed for a moment returned mrs merdle because society has made up its mind on the subject and there is nothing more to be said if we were in a more primitive state if we lived under roofs of leaves and kept cows and sheep and creatures instead of bankers accounts which would be delicious my dear i am pastoral to a degree by nature well and good but we don't live under leaves and keep cows and sheep and creatures i perfectly exhaust myself sometimes in pointing out the distinction to edmund sparkler mrs gowan looking over her green fan when this young gentleman's name was mentioned replied as follows my love you know the wretched state of the country those unfortunate concessions of john barnacles and you therefore know the reason for my being as poor as thingamy a church mouse mrs merdle suggested with a smile i was thinking of the other proverbial church person job said mrs gowan either will do it would be idle to disguise consequently that there is a wide difference between the position of your son and mine i may add too that henry has talent which edmund certainly has not said mrs merdle with the greatest suavity and that his talent combined with disappointment mrs gowan went on has led him into a pursuit which oh dear me you know my dear such being henry's different position the question is what is the most inferior class of marriage to which I can reconcile myself. Mrs. Merdle was so much engaged with the contemplation of her arms, beautiful formed arms, and the very thing for bracelets, that she omitted to reply for a while. Roused at length by the silence, she folded the arms, and with admirable presence of mind, looked at her friend full in the face, and said interrogatively, "'Yes, and then?' "'And then, my dear?' 
said Mrs. Gowan, not quite so sweetly as before, "'I should be glad to hear what you have to say to it.' Here the parrot, who had been standing on one leg since he screamed last, burst into a fit of laughter, bobbed himself derisively up and down on both legs, and finished by standing on one leg again, and pausing for a reply, with his head as much awry as he could possibly twist it. "'Sounds mercenary to ask what the gentleman is to get with the lady,' said Mrs. Merdle. "'But society is perhaps a little mercenary, you know, my dear.' "'From what I can make out,' said Mrs. Gowan, "'I believe I may say that Henry will be relieved from debt.' "'Much in debt?' asked Mrs. Merdle through her eyeglass. "'Why, tolerably, I should think,' said Mrs. Gowan. "'Meaning the usual thing, I understand just so,' Mrs. Merdle observed in a comfortable sort of way. "'And that the father will make them an allowance of three hundred a year, or perhaps altogether something more, which in Italy—oh, going to Italy,' said Mrs. Merdle, "'for Henry to study.' "'You need be at no loss to guess why, my dear, that dreadful art.' True, Mrs. Merdle hastened to spare the feelings of her afflicted friend, she understood. Say no more. "'And that,' said Mrs. Gowan, shaking her despondent head, "'that's all that,' repeated Mrs. Gowan, furling her green fan for the moment, and tapping her chin with it. It was on the way to being a double chin, might be called a chin and a half at present.' "'That's all. On the death of the old people, I suppose there will be more to come, but how it may be restricted or locked up I don't know, and as to that they may live for ever. My dear, they are just the kind of people to do it.' Now Mrs. Merdle, who really knew her friend's society pretty well, and who knew what society's mothers were, and what society's daughters were, and what society's matrimonial market was, and how prices ruled in it, and what scheming and counter-scheming took place for the high buyers, and what bargaining and huckstering went on, thought in the depths of her capacious bosom that this was a sufficiently good catch. Knowing, however, what was expected of her, and perceiving the exact nature of the fiction to be nursed, she took it delicately in her arms, and put her required contribution of gloss upon it. "'And that is all, my dear,' said she, heaving a friendly sigh. "'Well, well, the fault is not yours. You've nothing to reproach yourself with. You must exercise the strength of mind for which you are renowned, and make the best of it.' "'The girl's family have made,' said Mrs. Gowan, "'of course, the most strenuous endeavours to, as the lawyers say, to have and to hold Henry. Of course they have, my dear, said Mrs. Merdle. I have persisted in every possible objection, and have worried myself morning, noon, and night for means to detach Henry from the connection. No doubt you have, my dear, said Mrs. Merdle. And all of no use. All has broken down beneath me. Now tell me, my love, "'Am I justified in at last yielding my most reluctant consent "'to Henry's marrying among people not in society? "'Or have I acted with inexcusable weakness?' "'In answer to this direct appeal, Mrs. Merdle assured Mrs. Gowan, 
speaking as a priestess of society, that she was highly to be commended, that she was much to be sympathised with, that she had taken the highest of parts, and come out of the furnace refined. And Mrs. Gowan, who of course saw through her own threadbare blind perfectly, and who knew that Mrs. Myrtle saw through it perfectly, and who knew that society would see through it perfectly, came out of this form, notwithstanding, as she had gone into it, with immense complacency and gravity. The conference was held at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, when all the region of Harley Street, Cavendish Square, was resonant of carriage-wheels and double-knocks. It had reached this point when Mr. Myrtle came home from his daily occupation of causing the British name to be more and more respected in all parts of the civilised globe capable of the appreciation of world-wide commercial enterprise and gigantic combinations of skill and capital. For though nobody knew with the least precision what Mr. Myrtle's business was, except that it was to coin money, these were the terms in which everybody defined it on all ceremonious occasions and which it was the last new polite reading of the parable of the camel and the needle's eye to accept without inquiry for a gentleman who had this splendid work cut out for him mr merdle looked a little common and rather as if in the course of his vast transactions he had accidentally made an interchange of heads with some inferior spirit he presented himself before the two ladies in the course of a dismal stroll through his mansion which had no apparent object but escape from the presence of the chief butler i beg your pardon he said stopping short in confusion i didn't know there was anybody here but the parrot however as mrs merdle said you can come in and as mrs gowan said she was just going and had already risen to take her leave he came in and stood looking out at a distant window, with his hands crossed under his uneasy coat-cuffs, clasping his wrists as if he were taking himself into custody. In this attitude he fell directly into a reverie from which he was only aroused by his wife's calling to him from her ottoman when they had been for some quarter of an hour alone. "'Eh? Yes,' said Mr. Myrtle, turning towards her. "'What is it?' "'What is it?' repeated Mrs. Myrtle. "'It is, I suppose, that you have not heard a word of my complaint.' "'Your complaint, Mrs. Myrtle,' said Mr. Myrtle, "'I didn't know that you were suffering from a complaint. What complaint?' "'A complaint of you,' said Mrs. Myrtle. "'Oh, a complaint of me,' said Mr. Myrtle. "'What is the—what have I—what may you have to complain of in me, Mrs. Myrtle?' In his withdrawing, abstracted, pondering way, it took him some time to shape this question, as a kind of faint attempt to convince himself that he was the master of the house, he concluded by presenting his forefinger to the parrot, who expressed his opinion on the subject by instantly driving his bill into it. "'You were saying, Mrs. Myrtle,' said Mr. Myrtle, with his wounded finger in his mouth, "'that you had a complaint against me?' a complaint which i could scarcely show the justice of more emphatically than by having to repeat it said mrs merdle i might as well have stated it to the wall i'd far better have stated it to the bird he would at least have screamed you don't want me to scream mrs merdle i suppose said mr merdle taking a chair indeed i don't know retorted mrs merdle but that you had better do that than be so moody and distraught 
one would at least know that you were sensible of what was going on around you. A man might scream and yet not be that, Mrs. Merdle, said Mr. Merdle heavily, and might be dogged, as you are at present without screaming, returned Mrs. Merdle. That's very true. If you wish to know the complaint I make against you, it is, in so many plain words, that you really ought not to go out into society unless you can accommodate yourself to society. Mr. Merdle, so twisting his hands into what hair he had upon his head, that he seemed to lift himself up by it as he started out of his chair, cried, "'Why, in the name of all the infernal powers, Mrs. Merdle, who does more for society than I do? Do you see these premises, Mrs. Merdle? Do you see this furniture, Mrs. Merdle? Do you look in the glass and see yourself, Mrs. Merdle? Do you know the cost of all this, and who it's all provided for? And yet will you tell me that I oughtn't to go into society? I, who shower money upon it in this way? I, who might always be said to, 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 to harness myself to a watering cart for of money and go about saturating society every day of my life. Pray, don't be violent, Mr. Merdle, said Mrs. Merdle. Violent, said Mr. Merdle. You are enough to make me desperate. You don't know half of what I do to accommodate society. You don't know anything of the sacrifices I make for it. I know, returned Mrs. Merdle, that you receive the best in the land. I know that you move in the whole society of the country, and I believe I know—indeed, not to make any ridiculous pretence about it—I know, I know. Who sustains you in it, Mr. Merdle?" "'Mrs. Merdle,' retorted that gentleman, wiping his dull red and yellow face, "'I know that as well as you do. If you were not an ornament to society, and if I was not a benefactor to society, you and I would never have come together. When I say a benefactor to it, I mean a person who provides it with all sorts of expensive things to eat and drink and look at. But to tell me that I'm not fit for it after all I have done for it, after all I have done for it, repeated Mr. Merdle with a wild emphasis that made his wife lift up her eyelids, after all, all, to tell me I've no right to mix with it after all, is a pretty reward. I say— answered Mrs. Merdle, composedly, that you ought to make yourself fit for it by being more dégagé and less preoccupied. There is a positive vulgarity in carrying your business affairs about with you as you do. "'How do I carry them about, Mrs. Merdle?' asked Mr. Merdle. "'How do you carry them about?' said Mrs. Merdle. "'Look at yourself in the glass.' Mr. Merdle involuntarily turned his eyes in the direction of the nearest mirror, and asked, with a slow determination of his turbid blood to his temples, whether a man was to be called to account for his digestion. "'You have a physician,' said Mrs. Merdle. "'He does me no good,' said Mr. Merdle. Mrs. Merdle changed her ground. "'Besides,' said she, "'your digestion is nonsense. I don't speak of your digestion.' I speak of your manner. Mrs. Merdle, returned her husband, I look to you for that. You supply manner, and I supply money. I don't expect you, said Mrs. Merdle, reposing easily among her cushions, to captivate people. I don't want you to take any trouble upon yourself, or try to be fascinating. 
I simply request you to care about nothing, or seem to care about nothing, as everybody else does. Do I ever say I care about anything? asked Mr. Myrtle. Say? No. Nobody would attend to you if you did. But you show it. Show what? What do I show? demanded Mr. Myrtle hurriedly. I have already told you. You show that you carry your business cares and projects about, instead of leaving them in the city, or wherever else they belong to, said Mrs. Myrtle, or seeming to. Seeming would be quite enough. I ask no more, whereas you couldn't be more occupied with your day's calculations and combinations than you habitually show yourself to be, if you were a carpenter. A carpenter? repeated Mr. Myrtle, checking something like a groan. "'I shouldn't so much mind being a carpenter, Mrs. Myrtle. "'And my complaint is,' pursued the lady, disregarding the low remark, "'that it is not the tone of society, and that you ought to correct it, Mr. Myrtle. "'If you have any doubt of my judgment, ask even Edmund Sparkler.' The door of the room had opened, and Mrs. Myrtle now surveyed the head of her son through her glass. "'Edmund, we want you here.' Mr. Sparkler, who had merely put in his head, and looked round the room without entering, as if he were searching the house for that young lady with no nonsense about her, upon this followed up his head with his body, and stood before them, to whom, in a few easy words, adapted to his capacity, Mrs. Myrtle stated the question at issue. The young gentleman, after anxiously feeling his shirt-collar, as if it were his pulse, and he were hypochondriacal, observed that he had heard it noticed by the fellows. "'Edmund Sparkler has heard it noticed,' said Mrs. Myrtle, with languid triumph. "'Why, no doubt everybody has heard it noticed,' which in truth was no unreasonable inference, seeing that Mr. Sparkler would probably be the last person, in any assemblage of the human species, to receive an impression from anything that passed in his presence. "'And Edmund Sparkler will tell you, I dare say,' said Mrs. Myrtle, waving her favourite hand towards her husband, how he has heard it noticed. "'I couldn't,' said Mr. Sparkler, after feeling his pulse as before, "'couldn't undertake to say what led to it, cause memory desperate loose. But being in company with the brother of a deuced fine gal, well educated too, with no big god nonsense about her, at the period alluded to. There, never mind the sister, remarked Mrs. Myrtle a little impatiently. What did the brother say? Didn't say a word, ma'am, answered Mr. Sparkler, as silent a feller as myself, equally hard up for a remark. Somebody said something returned Mrs. Myrtle. Never mind who it was. Assure you, I don't in the least, said Mr. Sparkler. But tell us what it was. Mr. Sparkler referred to his pulse again, and put himself through some severe mental discipline, before he replied, Fellows referring to my governor, expression not my own, occasionally compliment my governor, in a very handsome way, on being immensely rich and knowing, perfect phenomenon of buyer and banker and that, but say the shop sits heavily on him, say he carried the shop about, 
on his back, rather like Jew clothesman, with too much business. "'Which,' said Mrs. Merdle, rising with her floating drapery about her, "'is exactly my complaint. Edmund, give me your arm upstairs.' Mr. Merdle, left alone to meditate on a better confirmation of himself to society, looked out of nine windows in succession, and appeared to see nine wastes of space. When he had thus entertained himself, he went downstairs, and looked intently at all the carpets on the ground floor, and then came upstairs again, and looked intently at all the carpets on the first floor, as if they were gloomy depths in unison with his oppressed soul. Through all the rooms he wandered, as he always did, like the last person on earth who had any business to approach them. Let Mrs. Merdle announce, with all her might, that she was at home ever so many nights in a season, she could not announce more widely and unmistakably that Mr. Merdle did that he was never at home. At last he met the chief butler, the sight of which splendid retainer always finished him. Extinguished by this great creature, he sneaked to his dressing-room, and there remained shut up until he rode out to dinner, with Mrs. Merdle in her own handsome chariot. At dinner he was envied and flattered as a being of might, was treasuried, barred, and bishoped as much as he would, and an hour after midnight came home alone, and being instantly put out again in his own hall like a rushlight by the chief butler, went sighing to bed. End of Book One Chapter Thirty Three Book One, Chapter Thirty Four of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Thirty Four A Shoal of Barnacles. Mr. Henry Gowan and the dog were established frequenters of the cottage, and the day was fixed for the wedding. There was to be a convocation of barnacles on the occasion, in order that that very high and very large family might shed as much lustre on the marriage as so dim an event was capable of receiving. To have got the whole barnacle family together would have been impossible, for two reasons. Firstly, because no building could have held all the members and connections of that illustrious house. Secondly, because wherever there was a square yard of ground in British occupation, under the sun or moon, with a public post upon it, sticking to that post, was a barnacle. No intrepid navigator could plant a flagstaff upon any spot of earth, and take possession of it in the British name, but to that spot of earth, so soon as the discovery was known, the circumlocution office sent out a barnacle, and a dispatch-box. Thus the barnacles were all over the world, in every direction, dispatch-boxing the compass. But while the so potent art of Prospero himself would have failed in summoning the barnacles from every speck of ocean and dry land on which there was nothing except mischief to be done, and anything to be pocketed, it was perfectly feasible to assemble a good many barnacles. This Mrs. Gowan applied herself to do, calling on Mr. Meagles frequently with new additions to the list, and holding conferences with that gentleman when he was not engaged, as he generally was at this period, in examining and paying the debts of his future son-in-law in the apartment of scales and scoops. One marriage guest there was, 
in reference to whose presence Mr. Meagles felt a nearer interest and concern than in the attendance of the most elevated barnacle expected, though he was far from insensible of the honour of having such company. This guest was Clennam. But Clennam had made a promise he held sacred, among the trees that summer night, and, in the chivalry of his heart, regarded it as binding him to many implied obligations. In forgetfulness of himself, and delicate service to her on all occasions, he was never to fail. To begin it, he answered Mr. Meagles cheerfully, "'I shall come, of course.' His partner Daniel Doyce was something of a stumbling-block in Mr. Meagles's way, the worthy gentleman being not at all clear in his own anxious mind, but that the mingling of Daniel with official barnacleism might produce some explosive combination, even at a marriage breakfast. The national offender, however, lightened him of his uneasiness by coming down to Twickenham to represent that he begged, with the freedom of an old friend, and as a favour to one, that he might not be invited. "'For,' said he, "'as my business with this set of gentlemen was to do a public duty, and a public service, and as their business with me was to prevent it by wearing my soul out, I think we'd better not eat and drink together with a show of being of one mind.' Mr. Meagles was much amused by his friend's oddity, and patronised him with a more protecting air of allowance than usual, when he rejoined, "'Well, well, Dan, you shall have your own crotchety way.' To Mr. Henry Gowan, as the time approached, Clennam tried to convey by all quiet and unpretending means that he was frankly and disinterestedly desirous of tendering him any friendship he would accept. Mr. Gowan treated him in return with his usual ease and with his usual show of confidence, which was no confidence at all. "'You see, Clennam,' he happened to remark in the course of conversation one day, when they were walking near the cottage within a week of the marriage, "'I am a disappointed man. That you know already.' "'Upon my word,' said Clennam, a little embarrassed, "'I scarcely know how.' "'Why,' returned Gowan, "'I belong to a clan, or a click, or a family, or a connection, or whatever you like to call it, that might have provided for me in any one of fifty ways, and that took it into its head not to do it at all. So here I am, a poor devil of an artist.' Clennam was beginning, but on the other hand, when Gowan took him up. "'Yes, yes, I know. I have the good fortune of being beloved by a beautiful and charming girl whom I love with all my heart.' "'Is there much of it?' Clennam thought and as he thought it, felt ashamed of himself. "'And of finding a father-in-law who was a capital fellow, and a liberal good old boy. Still, I had other prospects washed and combed into my childish head when it was washed and combed for me. I took them to a public school when I washed and combed it for myself, and I am here without them, and thus I am a disappointed man.' Clennam thought, and as he thought it, again felt ashamed of himself. Was this notion of being disappointed in life— an assertion of station, which the bridegroom brought into the family as his property, having already carried it detrimentally into his pursuit, and was it a hopeful or a promising thing anywhere? "'Not bitterly disappointed, I think,' he said aloud. "'Hang it! No, not bitterly,' laughed Gowan. "'My people are not worth that, though they are charming fellows, and I have the greatest affection for them. Besides, it's pleasant to show them that I can do without them, and that they may all go to the devil.' And besides, again, most men are disappointed in life, somehow or other, 
and influenced by their disappointment. But it's a dear good world, and I love it. It lies fair before you now, said Arthur. Fair as the summer river, cried the other with enthusiasm. And by Jove, I glow with admiration of it, and with ardour to run a race in it. It's the best of old worlds, and my calling the best of old callings, isn't it? Full of interest and ambition, I conceive, said Clennam. And imposition, added Gowan, laughing. We won't leave out the imposition. I hope I may not break down in that, but there, my being a disappointed man may show itself. I may not be able to face it out gravely enough. Between you and me, I think there is some danger of my being just enough soured not to be able to do that. To do what? asked Clennam. To keep it up. To help myself in my turn, as the man before me helps himself in his, and pass the bottle of smoke. To keep up the pretences to labour and study and patience and being devoted to my art, and giving up many solitary days to it, and abandoning many pleasures for it, and living in it, and all the rest of it. In short, to pass the bottle of smoke according to rule. But it is well for a man to respect his own vocation, whatever it is and to think himself bound to uphold it, and to claim for it the respect it deserves, is it not? Arthur reasoned, and your vocation, Gowan, may really demand this suit and service. I confess I should have thought that all art did. "'What a good fellow you are, Clennam!' exclaimed the other, stopping to look at him, as if with irrepressible admiration. "'What a capital fellow! You have never been disappointed. That's easy to see.' It would have been so cruel, if he had meant it, that Clennam firmly resolved to believe he did not mean it. Gowan, without pausing, laid his hand upon his shoulder, and laughingly and lightly went on. "'Clennam, I don't like to dispel your generous visions, and I would give any money, if I had any, to live in such a rose-coloured mist. But what I do in my trade, I do to sell. What all we fellows do, we do to sell.' If we didn't want to sell it for the most we can get for it, we shouldn't do it. Being work, it has to be done, but it's easily enough done. All the rest is hocus-pocus. Now, here's one of the advantages or disadvantages of knowing a disappointed man. You hear the truth." Whatever he had heard, and whether it deserved that name or another, it sank into Clennam's mind. It so took root there, that he began to fear Henry Gowan would always be a trouble to him, and that so far he had gained little or nothing from the dismissal of nobody, with all his inconsistencies, anxieties, and contradictions. He found a contest still going always in his breast, between his promise to keep Gowan in none but good aspects before the mind of Mr. Meagles, and his enforced observation of Gowan in aspects that had no good in them. Nor could he quite support his own conscientious nature against misgivings, that he distorted and discoloured himself, by reminding himself that he never sought those discoveries, and that he would have avoided them with willingness and great relief. For he never could forget what he had been, and he knew he had once disliked Gowan for no better reason than that he had come in his way. Harassed by these thoughts, he now began to wish the marriage over, Gowan and his young wife gone, and himself left to fulfil his promise and discharge the generous function he had accepted. This last week was, in truth, an uneasy interval for the whole house. 
before Pet, or before Gowan, Mr. Meagles was radiant, but Clennam had more than once found him alone, with his view of the scales and scoop much blurred, and had often seen him look after the lovers in the garden, or elsewhere, when he was not seen by them, with the old clouded face on which Gowan had fallen like a shadow. In the arrangement of the house for the great occasion, many little reminders of the old travels of the father and mother and daughter had to be disturbed and passed from hand to hand, and sometimes in the midst of these mute witnesses to the life they had had together, even Pet herself would yield to lamenting and weeping. Mrs. Meagles, the blithest and busiest of mothers, went about singing and cheering everybody, but she, honest soul, had her flights into storerooms, where she would cry until her eyes were red, and would then come out, attributing that appearance to pickled onions and pepper, and singing clearer than ever. Mrs. Ticket, finding no balsam for a wounded mind in Buchan's domestic medicine, suffered greatly from low spirits, and from moving recollections of Minnie's infancy. When the latter was powerful with her, she usually sent up secret messages, importing that she was not in parlour condition as to her attire, and that she solicited a sight of her child in the kitchen. There she would bless her child's face, and bless her child's heart, and hug her child in a medley of tears and congratulations, chopping-boards, rolling-pins, and pie-crust, with the tenderness of an old attached servant, which is a very pretty tenderness indeed. But all days come that are to be, and the marriage-day was to be, and it came, and with it came all the barnacles who were bidden to the feast. There was Mr. Tite Barnacle, from the Circumlocution Office and Muse Street, Grosvenor Square, with the expensive Mrs. Tite Barnacle, knee silt-stalking, who made the quarter-day so long in coming, and the three expensive Miss Tite Barnacles, double-loaded with accomplishments and ready to go off, and yet not going off with the sharpness of flash and bang that might have been expected, but rather hanging fire. There was Barnacle Junior, also, from the Circumlocution Office, leaving the tonnage of the country, which he was somehow supposed to take under his protection, to look after itself, and, sooth to say, not at all impairing the efficiency of its protection by leaving it alone. There was the engaging young Barnacle, deriving from the sprightly side of the family, also from the Circumlocution Office, gaily and agreeably helping the occasion along, and treating it, in his sparkling way, as one of the official forms and fees of the Church Department of How Not to Do It. There were three other young barnacles from three other offices, insipid to all the senses, and terribly in want of seasoning, doing the marriage as they would have done the Nile, Old Rome, the New Singer, or Jerusalem. But there was greater game than this. There was Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle himself, in the odour of circumlocution, with the very smell of dispatch-boxes upon him. Yes, there was Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle, who had risen to official heights on the wings of one indignant idea, and that was, "'My lords, that I am yet to be told that it behoves a minister of this free country to set bounds to the philanthropy, to crep the charity, to fetter the public spirit, to contract the enterprise, to damp the independent self-reliance of its people.' That was, in other words, that this great statesman was always yet to be told that it behoved the pilot of the ship to do anything but prosper in the private loaf and fish trade ashore, 
the crew being able, by dint of hard pumping, to keep the ship above water without him. On this sublime discovery in the great art how not to do it, Lord Decimus had long sustained the highest glory of the Barnacle family, and let any ill-advised member of either house but try how to do it, by bringing in a bill to do it, that bill was as good as dead and buried when Lord Decimus Tight Barnacle rose up in his place, and solemnly said, soaring into indignant majesty as the circumlocution cheering soared around him, that he was yet to be told, my lords, that it behoved him as the minister of this free country to set bounds to the philanthropy, to cramp the charity, to fetter the public spirit, to contract the enterprise, to damp the independent self-reliance of its people. The discovery of this behoving machine was the discovery of the political perpetual motion. It never wore out, though it was always going round and round in all the state departments. And there, with his noble friend and relative, Lord Decimus, was William Barnacle, who had made the ever-famous coalition with Tudor still stalking, and who always kept ready his own particular recipe for how not to do it, sometimes tapping the speaker, and drawing it fresh out of him, with a— First, I will beg you, sir, to inform the House what precedent we have for the course into which the Honourable Gentleman would precipitate us. Sometimes asking the Honourable Gentleman to favour him with his own version of the precedent, sometimes telling the Honourable Gentleman that he, William Barnacle, would search for a precedent, and oftentimes crushing the Honourable Gentleman flat on the spot, by telling him there was no precedent. But precedent and precipitate were, under all circumstances, the well-matched pair of battle-horses of this able circumlocutionist. No matter that the unhappy honourable gentleman had been trying in vain for twenty-five years to precipitate William Barnacle into this, William Barnacle still put it to the house, and, at second hand or so, to the country, whether he was to be precipitated into this. No matter that it was utterly irreconcilable with the nature of things and course of events, that the wretched honourable gentleman could possibly produce a precedent for this. William Barnacle would, nevertheless, thank the honourable gentleman for that ironical cheer, and would close with him upon that issue, and would tell him to his teeth that there was no precedent for this. It might perhaps have been objected that the William Barnacle wisdom was not high wisdom, or the earth it bamboozled would never have been made, or, if made in a rash mistake, would have remained blank mud. But precedent and precipitate together frightened all objection out of most people. And there, too, was another barnacle, a lively one, who had leaped through twenty places in quick succession, and was always in two or three at once, and who was the much-respected inventor of an art which he practised with great success and admiration in all barnacle governments. This was, when he was asked a parliamentary question on any one topic, to return an answer on any other. It had done immense service, and brought him into high esteem with the Circumlocution Office. And there, too, was a sprinkling of less distinguished parliamentary barnacles, who had not as yet got anything snug, and were going through their probation to prove their worthiness. These barnacles, perched upon staircases and hidden passages, waiting their orders to make houses or not to make houses, and they did all their hearing and owing and cheering and barking under directions from the heads of the family, and they put dummy motions on the paper in the way of other men's motions, and they stalled disagreeable subjects off until late in the night, 
and late in the session, and then with virtuous patriotism cried out that it was too late. And they went down into the country, whenever they were sent, and swore that Lord Decimus had revived trade from a swoon, and commerce from a fit, and had doubled the harvest of corn, quadrupled the harvest of hay, and prevented no end of gold from flying out of the bank. Also these barnacles were dealt, by the heads of the family, like so many cards below the court cards, to public meetings and dinners, where they bore testimony to all sorts of services on the part of their noble and honourable relatives, and buttered the barnacles on all sorts of toasts. And they stood, under similar orders, at all sorts of elections, and they turned out of their own seats, on the shortest notice, and the most unreasonable terms, to let in other men and they fetched, and carried, and toadied, and jobbed, and corrupted, and ate heaps of dirt, and were indefatigable in the public service. And there was not a list, in all the circumlocution office, of places that might fall vacant anywhere within half a century, from a lord of the treasury to a Chinese consul, and up again to a governor-general of India. But as applicants for such places, the names of some, or of every one of these hungry and adhesive barnacles, were down. It was necessarily but a sprinkling of any class of barnacles that attended the marriage, for there were not two score in all, and what is that subtracted from legion? But the sprinkling was a swarm in the Twickenham cottage, and filled it. A barnacle, assisted by a barnacle, married the happy pair, and it behoved Lord Decimus Tight Barnacle himself to conduct Mrs. Meagles to breakfast. The entertainment was not as agreeable and natural as it might have been. Mr. Meagles, hove down by his good company while he highly appreciated it, was not himself. Mrs. Gowan was herself, and that did not improve him. The fiction that it was not Mr. Meagles who had stood in the way, but that it was the family greatness, and that the family greatness had made a concession, and there was now a soothing unanimity, pervaded the affair though it was never openly expressed. Then the barnacles felt that they, for their parts, would have done with the Meagleses, when the present patronising occasion was over, and the Meagleses felt the same for their parts. Then Gowan, asserting his rights as a disappointed man who had his grudge against the family, and who, perhaps, had allowed his mother to have them there, as much in the hope it might give them some annoyance as with any other benevolent object, aired his pencil and his poverty ostentatiously before them, and told them he hoped in time to settle a crust of bread and cheese on his wife, and that he begged such of them, as, more fortunate than himself, came in for any good thing, and could buy a picture, to please to remember the poor painter. Then Lord Decimus, who was a wonder on his own parliamentary pedestal, turned out to be the windiest creature here proposing happiness to the bride and bridegroom in a series of platitudes that would have made the hair of any sincere disciple and believer stand on end, and trotting with the complacency of an idiotic elephant among howling labyrinths of sentences which he seemed to take for high roads, and never so much as wanted to get out of. Then Mr. Tight Barnacle could not but feel that there was a person in company who would have disturbed his lifelong sitting to Sir Thomas Lawrence in full official character if such disturbance had been possible. While Barnacle Junior did, with indignation, communicate to two vapid gentlemen, his relatives, that there was a fellow here, look here, who had come to our department without an appointment, and said he wanted to know, you know, and that, look here, if he was to break out now, as he might, you know, 
for you never could tell what an ungentlemanly radical of that sort would be up to next, and was to say, look here, that he wanted to know this moment, you know, that would be jolly, wouldn't it? The pleasantest part of the occasion by far, to Clennam, was the painfullest, when Mr. and Mrs. Meagles at last hung about Pet in the room with the two pictures, where the company were not, before going with her to the threshold, which she could never recross to be the old Pet and the old delight. Nothing could be more natural and simple than the three were. Gowan himself was touched, and answered Mr. Meagles's, "'Oh, Gowan, take care of her, take care of her,' with an earnest, "'Don't be so broken-hearted, sir. By heaven I will.' And so, with the last sobs and last loving words, and a last look to Clennam of confidence in his promise, Pet fell back in the carriage, and her husband waved his hand, and they were away for Dover, though not until the faithful Mrs. Ticket, in her silk gown and jet-black curls, had rushed out from some hiding-place, and thrown both her shoes after the carriage, an apparition which occasioned great surprise to the distinguished company at the windows. The said company being now relieved from further attendance, and the chief barnacles being rather hurried, for they had it in hand just then to send a mail or two, which was in danger of going straight to its destination, beating about the seas like the flying Dutchman, and to arrange with complexity for the stoppage of a good deal of important business otherwise in peril of being done, went their several ways, with all affability conveying to Mr. and Mrs. Meagles that general assurance that what they had been doing there they had been doing at a sacrifice for Mr. and Mrs. Meagles' good which they always conveyed to Mr. John Bull, in their official condescension to that most unfortunate creature. A miserable blank remained in the house, and in the hearts of the father and mother and Clennam. Mr. Meagles called only one remembrance to his aid that really did him good. "'It's very gratifying, Arthur,' he said, "'after all, to look back upon.' "'The past,' said Clennam, "'Yes, but I mean the company.' It had made him much more low and unhappy at the time, but now it really did him good. "'It's very gratifying,' he said, often repeating the remark in the course of the evening, "'such high company.'" End of Book One, Chapter Thirty Four Book One, Chapter Thirty Five of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty, Chapter Thirty Five. What was behind Mr. Panks on Little Dorrit's hand? It was at this time that Mr. Panks, in discharge of his compact with Clennam revealed to him the whole of his gypsy story, and told him Little Dorrit's fortune. Her father was heir at law to a great estate that had long lain unknown of, unclaimed, and accumulating. His right was now clear. Nothing interposed in his way. The Marshalsea gates stood open. The Marshalsea walls were down. A few flourishes of his pen, and he was extremely rich. In his tracking out of the claim to its complete establishment, 
Mr. Pancks had shown a sagacity that nothing could baffle, and a patience and secrecy that nothing could tire. "'I little thought, sir,' said Pancks, "'when you and I crossed Smithfield that night, and I told you what sort of a collector I was, that this would come of it. I little thought, sir, when I told you you are not of the Clennams of Cornwall, that I was ever going to tell you who were of the Dorrits of Dorsetshire. He then went on to detail. How, having that name recorded in his notebook, he was first attracted by the name alone. How, having often found two exactly similar names, even belonging to the same place, to involve no traceable consanguinity, near or distant, he did not at first give much heed to this, except in the way of speculation as to what a surprising change would be made in the condition of a little seamstress, if she could be shown to have any interest in so large a property. How he rather supposed himself to have pursued the idea into its next degree, because there was something uncommon in the quiet little seamstress which pleased him and provoked his curiosity. How he had felt his way, inch by inch, and moulded out, sir, that was Mr. Pank's expression, grain by grain. How, in the beginning of the labour described by this new verb, and to render which the more expressive, Mr. Pank's shut his eyes in pronouncing it, and shook his hair over them, he had alternated from sudden lights and hopes, to sudden darkness and no hopes, and back again, and back again. How he had made acquaintances in the prison, expressly that he might come and go there, as all other comers and goers did, and how his first ray of light was unconsciously given him by Mr. Dorrit himself, and by his son, to both of whom he easily became known, with both of whom he talked much casually. "'But always moling, you'll observe,' said Mr. Pancks, and from whom he derived, without being at all suspected, two or three little points of family history, which, as he began to hold clues of his own, suggested others.' how it had at length become plain to mr pancks that he had made a real discovery of the heir-at-law to a great fortune and that his discovery had but to be ripened to legal fulness and perfection how he had thereupon sworn his landlord mr rugg to secrecy in a solemn manner and taken him into the moling partnership how they had employed john chivery as their sole clerk and agent seeing to whom he was devoted and how until the present hour, when authorities mighty in the bank, and learned in the law, declared their successful labours ended, they had confided in no other human being. "'So, if the whole thing had broken down, sir,' concluded Pancks, "'at the very last, say the day before the other day, when I showed you our papers in the prison yard, or say that very day, nobody but ourselves would have been cruelly disappointed.' or a penny the worse. Clennam, who had been almost incessantly shaking hands with him throughout the narrative, was reminded by this to say, in an amazement which even the preparation he had had for the main disclosure smoothed down, "'My dear Mr. Pancks, this must have cost you a great sum of money.' Ah, uh, "'Pretty well, sir,' said the triumphant Pancks. "'No trifle, though we did it as cheap as it could be done.' and the outlay was a difficulty, let me tell you." "'A difficulty,' repeated Clennam. "'But the difficulties you have so wonderfully conquered in the whole business,' shaking his hand again, 
"'I'll tell you how I did it,' said the delighted Pancks, putting his hair into a condition as elevated as himself. First, I spent all I had of my own. That wasn't much.' "'I'm sorry for it,' said Clennam. "'Not that it matters now, though. Then what did you do?' "'Then,' answered Pancks, "'I borrowed a sum of my proprietor.' "'Of Mr. Casby?' said Clennam. "'He's a fine old fellow.' "'Noble old boy, ain't he?' said Mr. Pancks, entering on a series of the driest snorts. "'Generous old buck. Confiding old boy. Philanthropic old buck.' "'Benevolent old boy. Twenty per cent. I engaged it to pay him, sir. But we never do business for less at our shop.' Arthur felt an awkward consciousness of having, in his exultant condition, been a little premature. "'I said to that boiling-over old Christian,' Mr. Pancks pursued, appearing greatly to relish this descriptive epithet, "'that I had got a little project on hand, a hopeful one. I told him a hopeful one which wanted a certain small capital. I proposed to him to lend me the money on my note, which he did, at twenty, sticking the twenty on in a business-like way, and putting it into the note to look like a part of the principal. If I had broken down after that, I should have been his grubber for the next seven years at half wages and double grind. But he's a perfect patriarch, and it would do a man good to serve him on such terms, on any terms." Arthur, for his life, could not have said with confidence whether Pancks really thought so or not. "'When that was gone, sir,' resumed Pancks, "'and it did go, though I dribbled it out like so much blood, I had taken Mr. Rugg into the secret. I proposed to borrow of Mr. Rugg, or of Miss Rugg, it's the same thing. She made a little money by a speculation in the common pleas once. He lent it at ten, and thought that pretty high.' but Mr. Rugg's a red-haired man, sir, and gets his hair cut. And as to the crown of his hat, it's high, and as to the brim of his hat, it's narrow, and there's no more benevolence bubbling out of him than out of a nine-pin. "'Your own recompense for all this, Mr. Pancks,' said Clennam, "'ought to be a large one.' "'I don't mistrust getting it, sir,' said Pancks. "'I've made no bargain. I owed you one on that score. Now I've paid it. Money out of pocket made good. Time fairly allowed for, and Mr. Rugg's bill settled. A thousand pounds would be a fortune to me. That matter I'll place in your hands. I authorise you now to break all this to the family in any way you think best. Miss Amy Dorrit will be with Mrs. Finchin this morning. The sooner done the better. Can't be done too soon. This conversation took place in Clennam's bedroom while he was yet in bed for Mr. Pancks had knocked up the house and made his way in very early in the morning, and without once sitting down or standing still, had delivered himself of the whole of his details, illustrated with a variety of documents, at the bedside. He now said he would go and look up Mr. Rugg, from whom his excited state of mind appeared to require another back, and bundling up his papers and exchanging one more hearty shake of the hand with Clennam, he went at full speed downstairs and steamed off. Clennam, of course, resolved to go direct to Mr. Casby's. He dressed and got out so quickly that he found himself at the corner of the patriarchal street nearly an hour before her time, but he was not sorry to have the opportunity of calming himself with a leisurely walk. When he returned to the street, and had knocked at the bright brass knocker, 
he was informed that she had come, and was shown upstairs to Flora's breakfast-room. Little Dorrit was not there herself, but Flora was, and testified the greatest amazement at seeing him. "'Good gracious! Arthur! Uh, Doris and Clennam!' cried that lady. "'Who would have ever thought of seeing such a sight as this? And pray excuse the wrapper, for upon my word I really never, and a faded cheque too, which is worse, but our little friend is making me. Not that I need mind mention it to you, for you must know that there are such things as skirt, and having arranged that a trying on should take place after breakfast is a reason, though I wish not so badly starched.' "'I ought to make an apology,' said Arthur, "'for so early and abrupt a visit. But you will excuse it when I tell you the cause.' "'It times for ever fled, Arthur,' returned Mrs. Finching. "'Pray excuse me, if Doyce and Clennam, infinitely more correct, and though unquestionably distant, still distance lends enchantment to the view. At least I don't mean that, and if I did, I suppose it would depend considerably on the nature of the view. But I'm running on again, and you put it all out of my head.' She glanced at him tenderly, and resumed. "'In times forever fled, I was going to say it would have sounded strange indeed for Arthur Clennam. Doyce and Clennam, naturally quite different, to make apologies for coming here at any time. But that is past, and what is past can never be recalled except in his own case, as poor Mr. F. said, when he was in spirits cucumber, and therefore never ate it.' She was making the tea when Arthur came in, and now hastily finished that operation. "'Papa!' she said, all mystery and whisper, as she shut down the teapot lid, is sitting prosingly, breaking his new-laid egg in the back parlour over the city article, exactly like the woodpecker tapping, and need never know that you are here, and our little friend, you are well aware, may be fully trusted, when she comes down from cutting out at the large table overhead. Arthur then told her, in the fewest words, that it was their little friend he came to see, and what he had to announce to their little friend. At which astounding intelligence, Flora clasped her hands, fell into a tremble, and shed tears of sympathy and pleasure, like the good-natured creature she really was. "'Oh, for goodness sake, let me get out of the way first, said Flora, putting her hands to her ears and moving towards the door, "'or I know I shall go off dead and screaming and make everybody worse than the dear little thing, only this morning looking so nice and neat and good, and yet so poor and now a fortune is she really deserves it too, and might I mention it to Mr. F.'s aunt, Arthur, uh, not Doyce and Clennam, for this once or objectionable, not on any account.' Arthur nodded his free permission. Since Flora shut out all verbal communication, Flora nodded in return to thank him, and hurried out of the room. Little Dorrit's step was already on the stairs, and in another moment she was at the door. Do what he could to compose his face, he could not convey so much of an ordinary expression into it, but at the moment she saw it, she dropped her work and cried, "'Mr. Clennam, what's the matter?' "'Nothing, nothing.' "'That is, no misfortune has happened. I have come to tell you something, but it is a piece of great good fortune.' "'Good fortune?' "'Wonderful fortune.' They stood in a window, and her eyes, full of light, were fixed upon his face. He put an arm about her, seeing her likely to sink down. She put a hand upon that arm, partly to rest upon it, and partly so to preserve their relative positions, as that her intent look at him should be shaken by no change of attitude in either of them. Her lips seemed to repeat, "'Wonderful fortune!' He repeated it again aloud. "'Dear little Dorrit, your father!' The ice of the pale face broke at the word, and little lights and shoots of expression passed all over it. They were all expressions of pain. Her breath was faint and hurried, her heart beat fast. He would have clasped the little figure closer, but he saw that the eyes appealed to him not to be moved. 
Your father can be free within this week. He does not know it. We must go to him from here to tell him of it. Your father will be free within a few days. Your father will be free within a few hours. Remember, we must go to him from here to tell him of it. That brought her back. Her eyes were closing, but they opened again. This is not all the good fortune. This is not all the wonderful good fortune, my dear little Dorrit. Shall I tell you more? Her lips shaped yes. Your father will be no beggar when he is free. He will want for nothing. Shall I tell you more? Remember, he knows nothing of it. We must go to him from here to tell him of it. She seemed to entreat him for a little time. He held her in his arm, and after a pause bent down his ear to listen. "'Did you ask me to go on?' "'Yes.' "'He will be a rich man. He is a rich man. A great sum of money is waiting to be paid over to him as his inheritance. You are all henceforth very wealthy.' bravest and best of children, I thank heaven that you are rewarded." As he kissed her, she turned her head towards his shoulder, and raised her arm towards his neck, cried out, "'Father! Father! Father!' and swooned away. Upon which Flora returned to take care of her, and hovered about her on a sofa intermingling kind offices and incoherent scraps of conversation in a manner so confounding that whether she pressed the marshalsea to take a spoonful of unclaimed dividends for it would do her good or whether she congratulated little dorrit's father on coming into possession of a hundred thousand smelling-bottles or whether she explained that she put seventy-five thousand drops of spirits of lavender on fifty thousand pounds of lump sugar and that she entreated little dorrit to take that gentle restorative or whether she bathed the foreheads of Doyce and Clennam in vinegar, and gave the late Mr. F. more air, no one with any sense of responsibility could have undertaken to decide. A tributary stream of confusion, moreover, poured in from an adjoining bedroom, where Mr. F.'s aunt appeared, from the sound of her voice to be in a horizontal posture awaiting her breakfast, and from which bower that inexorable lady snapped off short taunts whenever she could get a hearing, as— don't believe it's his doing. And he needn't take no credit to himself for it. And it'll be long enough, I expect, afore he'll give up any of his own money. All designed to disparage Clennam's share in the discovery, and to relieve those inveterate feelings with which Mr. F.'s aunt regarded him. But little Dorrit's solicitude to get to her father, and to carry the joyful tidings to him, and not to leave him in his jail a moment of this happiness in store for him and still unknown to him, did more for her speedy restoration than all the skill and attention on earth could have done. "'Come with me to my dear father. Pray come and tell my dear father,' were the first words she said. Her father, her father. She spoke of nothing but him, thought of nothing but him, kneeling down and pouring out her thankfulness with uplifted hands, her thanks were for her father. Flora's tenderness was quite overcome by this, and she launched out among the cups and saucers into a wonderful flow of tears and speech. "'I declare,' 
she sobbed. "'I never was so cut up since your mamma and my papa, not Doyce and Clennam for this once, but give the precious little thing a cup of tea, and make her put it to her lips at least pray, Arthur, do, not even Mr. F.'s last illness, for that was of another kind, and gout is not a child's affection, though very painful for all parties, and Mr. F. a martyr with his leg upon a rest, and the wine-trade in itself inflammatory, for they will do it more or less among themselves, and who can wonder? It seems like a dream, I am sure, to think of nothing at all this morning, and now minds of money, is it really? But you must know, my darling love, because you never still be strong enough to tell him all about it upon teaspoons. Mightn't it be even best to try the directions of my own medical man, for though the flavour is anything but agreeable, still I force myself to do it as a prescription, and find the benefit. You'd rather not, why, no, my dear, I'd rather not, but still I do it as a duty. Everybody will congratulate you, some in earnest, and some not, and many will congratulate you with all their hearts, but none more so, I do assure you, from the bottom of my own. I do myself, though sensible of blundering and being stupid, and will be judged by Arthur, not Doyce, Tenham, for this once. So good-bye, darling, and God bless you, and may you be very happy and excuse the liberty, finding that the dress shall never be finished by anybody else, but shall be laid by for a keepsake, just as it is, and called Little Dorrit, though why that strangest of denominations any time I never did myself, and now I never shall. Thus Flora, and taking leave of her favourite, Little Dorrit thanked her, and embraced her over and over again, and finally came out of the house with Clennam, and took coach for the Marshalsea. It was a strangely unreal ride through the old squalid streets, with a sensation of being raised out of them into an airy world of wealth and grandeur. When Arthur told her that she would soon ride in her own carriage through very different scenes, when all familiar experiences would have vanished away, she looked frightened. But when he substituted her father for herself, and told her how he would ride in his carriage, and how great and grand he would be, her tears of joy and innocent pride fell fast. Seeing that the happiness her mind could realise was all shining upon him, Arthur kept that single figure before her, and so they rode brightly through the poor streets in the prison neighbourhood to carry him the great news. When Mr. Chivery, who was on duty, admitted them into the lodge, he saw something in their faces which filled him with astonishment. He stood looking after them when they hurried into the prison, as though he perceived that they had come back accompanied by a ghost apiece. Two or three collegians whom they passed looked after them too, and presently, joining Mr. Chivery, formed a little group on the lodge steps, in the midst of which there spontaneously originated a whisper that the father was going to get his discharge. Within a few minutes it was heard in the remotest room in the college. Little Dorrit opened the door from without, and they both entered. He was sitting in his old grey gown, and his old black cap, in the sunlight by the window, reading his newspaper. His glasses were in his hand, and he had just looked round, surprised at first, no doubt, by her step upon the stairs, not expecting her until night, surprised again by seeing Arthur Clennam in her company. As they came in, the same unwonted look in both of them, which had already caught attention in the yard below, struck him. He did not rise or speak, but laid down his glasses and his newspaper on the table beside him, and looked at them with his mouth a little open, and his lips trembling. When Arthur put out his hand, he touched it, but not with his usual state, and then he turned to his daughter, who had sat down close beside him with her hands upon his shoulder, and looked attentively in her face. "'Father, I have been made so happy this morning.' "'You have been made so happy, my dear?' "'By Mr. Clennam, father.' He brought me such joyful and wonderful intelligence about you. 
if he had not with his great kindness and gentleness prepared me for it father prepared me for it father i think i could not have borne it her agitation was exceedingly great and the tears rolled down her face he put his hand suddenly to his heart and looked at clennam compose yourself sir said clennam and take a little time to think to think of the brightest and most fortunate accidents of life. We have all heard of great surprises of joy. They are not at an end, sir. They are rare, but not at an end. Mr. Clennam, not at an end. Not at an end for— He touched himself upon the breast, instead of saying, me. No, returned Clennam. What? "'Surprise?' he asked, keeping his left hand over his heart, and there stopping in his speech, while with his right hand he put his glasses exactly level on the table. "'What such surprise can be in store for me?' "'Let me answer with another question. Tell me, Mr. Dorrit, what surprise would be the most unlooked for and the most acceptable to you?' Do not be afraid to imagine it, or to say what it would be." He looked steadfastly at Clennam, and, so looking at him, seemed to change into a very old, haggard man. The sun was bright upon the wall, beyond the window, and on the spikes at top. He slowly stretched out the hand that had been upon his heart, and pointed at the wall. "'It is down,' said Clennam gone he remained in the same attitude looking steadfastly at him and in its place said clennam slowly and distinctly are the means to possess and enjoy the utmost that they have so long shut out mr dorrit there is not the smallest doubt that within a few days you will be free and highly prosperous I congratulate you with all my soul on this change of fortune, and on the happy future into which you are soon to carry the treasure you have been blessed with here, the best of all the riches you can have elsewhere, the treasure at your side." With those words he pressed his hand and released it, and his daughter, laying her face against his, encircled him in the hour of his prosperity with her arms as she had in the long years of his adversity encircled him with her love and toil and truth, and poured out her full heart in gratitude, hope, joy, blissful ecstasy, and all for him. "'I shall see him as I never saw him yet. I shall see my dear love with the dark cloud cleared away. I shall see him as my poor mother saw him long ago.' oh my dear my dear oh father father oh thank god thank god he yielded himself to her kisses and caresses but did not return them except that he put an arm about her neither did he say one word his steadfast look was now divided between her and clennam and he began to shake as if he were very cold explaining to little dorrit that he would run to the coffee-house for a bottle of wine arthur fetched it with all the haste he could while it was being brought from the cellar to the bar a number of excited people asked him what had happened 
when he hurriedly informed him that Mr. Dorrit had succeeded to a fortune. On coming back with the wine in his hand, he found that she had placed her father in his easy chair, and had loosened his shirt and neckcloth. They filled a tumbler with wine, and held it to his lips. When he had swallowed a little, he took the glass himself, and emptied it. Soon after that, he leaned back in his chair, and cried, with his handkerchief before his face. After this had lasted a while, Clennam thought it a good season for diverting his attention from the main surprise, by relating its details. Slowly, therefore, and in a quiet tone of voice, he explained them as best he could, and enlarged on the nature of Pank's service. "'He shall be—he shall be handsomely recompensed, sir,' said the father, starting up and moving hurriedly about the room. "'Assure yourself, Mr. Clennam, that everybody concerned shall be—shall be nobly rewarded.' No one, my dear sir, shall say that he has an unsatisfied claim against me. I shall repay the, um, the advances I have had from you, sir, with peculiar pleasure. I beg to be informed at your earliest convenience what advances you have made my son. He had no purpose in going about the room, but he was not still a moment. Everybody, he said, shall be remembered. I will not go away from here in anybody's debt. All the people who have been ah, well behaved towards myself and my family shall be rewarded. Chivery shall be rewarded. Young John shall be rewarded. I particularly wish and intend to act munificently, Mr. Clennam. Will you allow me? said Arthur, laying his purse on the table, to supply any present contingencies, Mr. Dorrit. I thought it best to bring a sum of money for the purpose. Thank you, sir, thank you. I accept with readiness at the present moment what I could not an hour ago have conscientiously taken. I am obliged to you for the temporary accommodation. Exceedingly temporary, but well-timed, well-timed. His hand had closed upon the money, and he carried it about with him. "'Be so kind, sir, as to add the amount to those former advances to which I have already referred, being careful, if you please, not to omit advances made to my son. A mere verbal statement of the gross amount is all I shall ha, all I shall require.' His eye fell upon his daughter at this point, and he stopped for a moment to kiss her and to pat her head. "'It will be necessary to find a milliner, my love, and to make a speedy and complete change in your very plain dress. Something must be done with Maggie, too, who at present is uh, barely respectable, barely respectable, and your sister Amy and your brother, and my brother your uncle, poor soul. I trust this will rouse him.' Messengers must be dispatched to fetch them. They must be informed of this. We must break it to them cautiously. But they must be informed directly. We owe it as a duty to them and to ourselves, from this moment, not to let them, hmm, not to let them do anything. This was the first intimation he had ever given, that he was privy to the fact that they did something for a livelihood. 
He was still jogging about the room, with the purse clutched in his hand, when a great cheering arose in the yard. "'The news has spread already,' said Clennam, looking down from the window. "'Will you show yourself to them, Mr. Dorrit? They are very earnest, and they evidently wish it.' "'I, uh, um, uh, I, I confess, I could have desired, Amy, my dear,' he said, jogging about in a more feverish flutter than before, to have made some change in my dress first, and to have brought a, hum, a watch and chain. But if it must be done as it is, it, uh, it must be done. Fasten the collar of my shirt, my dear. Mr. Clennam, would you oblige me, hum, with a blue neckcloth you will find in that drawer at your elbow? Button my coat across of the chest, my love, it looks, ah, it looks broader buttoned. With his trembling hand he pushed his grey hair up, and then, taking Clennam and his daughter for supporters, appeared at the window, leaning on an arm of each. The collegians cheered him very heartily, and he kissed his hand to them with great urbanity and protection. When he withdrew into the room again, he said, "'Poor creatures!' in a tone of much pity for their miserable condition. Little Dorrit was deeply anxious that he should lie down to compose himself. On Arthur's speaking to her of his going to inform Pancks that he might now appear as soon as he would, and pursue the joyful business to its close, she entreated him in a whisper to stay with her until her father should be quite calm and at rest. He needed no second entreaty, and she prepared her father's bed, and begged him to lie down. For another half-hour or more he would be persuaded to do nothing but go about the room, discussing with himself the probabilities for and against the marshals allowing the whole of the prisoners to go to the windows of the official residence which commanded the street, to see himself and family depart for ever in a carriage, which, he said, he thought would be a sight for them. But gradually he began to droop and tire, and at last stretched himself upon the bed. She took her faithful place beside him, fanning him and cooling his forehead, and he seemed to be falling asleep, always with the money in his hand, when he unexpectedly sat up and said, "'Mr. Glenham, I beg your pardon. Am I to understand, my dear sir, that I could, ah, could pass through the lodge at this moment, and, hmm, take a walk?' "'I think not, Mr. Dorrit.' was the unwilling reply. There are certain forms to be completed, and although your detention here is now in itself a form, I fear it is one that for a little longer has to be observed too. At this he shed tears again. It is but a few hours, sir, Clennam cheerfully urged upon him. A few hours, sir? he returned in a sudden passion. You talk very easily of hours, sir. How long do you suppose, sir, that an hour is to a man who is choking for want of air?" It was his last demonstration for that time, as, after shedding some more tears, and querulously complaining that he couldn't breathe, he slowly fell into a slumber. Clennam had abundant occupation for his thoughts, as he sat in the quiet room, watching the father on his bed, and the daughter fanning his face. Little Dorrit had been thinking, too after softly putting his grey hair aside, and touching his forehead with her lips, 
she looked towards Arthur, who came nearer to her, and pursued in a low whisper the subject of her thoughts. "'Mr. Clennam, will he pay all his debts before he leaves here?' "'No doubt. All.' "'All the debts for which he had been imprisoned here, all my life and longer?' "'No doubt.' There was something of uncertainty in remonstrance in her look, something that was not all satisfaction. He wondered to detect it, and said, "'You are glad that he should do so?' "'Are you?' asked Little Dorrit wistfully. "'Am I? Most heartily glad.' "'Then I know I ought to be.' "'And are you not?' "'It seems to me hard,' said Little Dorrit that he should have lost so many years, and suffered so much, and at last pay all the debts as well. It seems to me hard that he should pay in life and money both." "'My dear child,' Clennam was beginning. "'Yes, I know I am wrong,' she pleaded timidly. "'Don't think any worse of me. It has grown up with me here.' The prison which could spoil so many things, had tainted Little Dorrit's mind no more than this. Engendered as the confusion was, in compassion for the poor prisoner, her father, it was the first speck Clennam had ever seen, it was the last speck Clennam ever saw, of the prison atmosphere upon her. He thought this, and forbore to say another word. With the thought, her purity and goodness came before him in their brightest light the little spot made them the more beautiful. Worn out with their own emotions, and yielding to the silence of the room, her hand slowly slackened and failed in its fanning movement, and her head dropped down on the pillow at her father's side. Clennam rose softly, opened and closed the door without a sound, and passed from the prison, carrying the quiet with him into the turbulent streets. End of Book One, Chapter Thirty Five.